Well, I am Gilbert and Ling, or my Chinese name is simpler, Ling Ning. I was uh, born in Nanking, China on December 26, 1919. Um, I was born to a Confucianist scholarly family. Uh, in Chinese, it, it's called poetry and book family. And my, uh, both my parents are uh, scholars. My, they, uh, my father wrote four volumes of poetry. Uh, my mother was a uh, well-established calligrapher, which is one of the high form of literature and art. I have uh, uh, one brother and one sister. My brother is barely one year younger. So after my brother was born, my parents took him to their new job in Beijing. And uh, meanwhile, uh, following a Chinese tradition, I was given to the care of my grandparents. My grandparents lived in a small village uh, on the northern shore of the uh, mouth of Yangtze River. My grandfather is uh, was a very, very interesting person. And uh, uh, he had two little dogs and uh, smoked a long pipe. It used to be that every afternoon he would go to the, the local tea house and talking and advising all the people that come to talk to him. Uh, but he also is uh, very much a naturalist. My, my parents, uh, after they moved to uh, Beijing, uh, had a, a, a lifestyle of uh, upper middle class. My father earned his living as a banker. I'll give you an idea, which very few Americans know, that we, uh, for example, uh, my father and mother spent a great deal of time on artistic things, like uh, writing poetry and uh, painting, singing, and so what did my mother do? One thing I always uh, occur back to my mind is instructing the cook what will be the menu next morning, next day. And uh, the cook next morning will go to the shopping and bring back what they needed and cook the meal. We, uh, in turn, were cared for by uh, nurses and but um, when my father was doing really well, uh, we have two chauffeurs. And so life in general in Beijing, when my father was 
in his job was pleasant. However, my grandparents' life all different. I'll give you an insight. Uh, my grandfather may be called a landlord, but he had only a very small uh, acreage. Uh, but what is outstanding is one day uh, the tenant farmer came uh, with his uh, wheat, and um, my grandfather, uh, anticipating his coming, went to the market, bought fish, and cooked a big meal for the tenant and me and everybody else. And that is uh, the uh, lifestyle of my grandparents. And uh, among the things that struck me, it had something, the phenomena uh, uh, called uh, imprinting. And uh, you may remember Conrad Lawrence discovered that the gray goose hatched on a certain time, the 12th or 14th hour, anything that moves is his parent. That's imprinting. So in other words, every living creature as it develops has a moment, the window suddenly open, and that moment will have a lasting impact. What must have imprinted on me at the proper time is the farm animals my grandfather the grandmother uh, nurture. So ever since the beginning, I have a deep love of farming animals like chickens, ducks, and uh, pigeons, and so on, which never left me. Later on, it gradually expanded to include young humans. I love babies. <laughs> and so that was one aspect. Well, I stayed in uh, <clears throat> my grandparents' house until I was maybe about uh, four or five years old. Then something happened. My little pet dog turned rabbit and bit me. And uh, this uh, relative who also got bitten died a terrible death. But my father, on hearing what happened, came and picked me up and brought me back to Beijing, where I was uh, uh, given the treatment that Louis Pasteur dis discovered. It's, um, what what uh, the treatment was, 13 injections into my spinal cord of an emulsion of a rabbit, rabbit's brain. And, uh, and so I recovered. I want to remember this because my life I owe to Pasteur. In other words, scientific research is not just uh, fun. Scientific research really can save human lives. And that's very important to me. And in many ways, influence my life. And uh, after I uh, recovered, um, I 
grew up in Beijing, and uh, it was a good life uh, until uh, uh, 1938, when Japan invaded China, northern China. Well, the long and short story is uh, we moved away from Beijing, and I eventually entered college in Chongqing, which was the uh, capital of China during the wartime. Chongqing is, uh, was quite different from Beijing, and it was a, the, in the summertime especially, <coughs> very hot and humid. And uh, uh, I entered the uh, National Central University, uh, uh, in, uh, located in the suburb of uh, Chongqing. And uh, the, the life there, in general, was very hard because, I guess, shortage of money, so on. Even though our official president of the university was Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek himself. But consider that the 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 Chinese, the Japanese uh, Air Force had made a habit of bombing Chongqing, and they always want to drop bombs on our university too. So unusual, many times after days of spending in the shelter, we came out to find roof is gone. So we will um, try to find tiles and to cover up the part of uh, uh, the building that we sleep under. But in general, uh, <coughs> the, the teaching and, lead, uh, and learning were very good because we didn't have any distraction. However, life was, in general, very tough. To give you an example, uh, we have all together maybe 4,000 students at that, 8,000 students. And we were, uh, we all slept in seven gigantic dormitories. Each one cost uh, nearly 1,000 students in double bunkers all over the place. Of the seven, the seventh one were all students that had tuberculosis. Many of the students in the past that died, including one of my best friend. But nevertheless, we were able to study very hard because the teachers were very devoted. And I was, uh, uh, when I first uh, entered uh, the National Central University, I entered the Department of Animal Husbandry, following my love of animal uh, I had from my childhood. But after two years, I realized that was a mistake. Uh, the animal husbandry is the business mostly how to uh, raise animals to sell, and that was not my 
interest, so I switched to biology. Uh, when I entered in the Department of Biology of the National Central University, I was, again, very, very lucky in having a wonderful head of the department. Uh, his, uh, he he um, <clears throat> talked to me, he said, you have told me repeatedly that you want to study physiology. And I can tell you, if you want to study physiology, you have to know a great deal more of physics and chemistry. So he gave me special permission to essentially minor in both physics and chemistry. This was a break which I, to uh, this day, I feel very grateful because that made a world of difference. It is just most biology major have chemistry and physics, but it is uh, like uh, thermodynamics, the physical chemistry, but by and large, not really very close to what needs in order to understand life. Time passed, and next thing you know, uh, I have already graduated with a bachelor degree in biology. And my next step was to go to the graduate school of another university, Tsinghua University, down south. So, but before I did that, I took part in an event which was has which has uh, also profound influence on the future of my life, and this was the so-called Boxer Indemnity Scholarship. Now, a few words about what it is. As you know, Chinese history, uh, there were two opium wars. And in the Second Opium War, uh, eight nations uh, joined their forces and sacked Beijing. And uh, as a result, China was to pay indemnity to each one of the countries. And... Uh, A deeper uh, research uh, led me to understand what really happened. It so happened there was a Chinese scholar who became involved in this indemnity payments. And uh, he pointed out that China was paying more to America than it was supposed to. So the question is how to get rid of that money. And... Uh, so negotiation took place between China and America under Teddy Roosevelt. And it was decided it would be a good idea to offer some scholarship for young Chinese to know more about America and to study in America. But since the Chinese didn't know English, so they also started a little school that teach them English. And that little school, uh, after having uh, different names, finally ended up as Tsinghua University, the university which had the graduate school I was going to attend. 
the the uh, the how do how do they select uh, uh, the students? Because um, obviously many people would like to uh, take advantage of the scholarship and come to study in the United States, and this China went back to its old tradition of uh, <coughs> competitive examination. Uh, as you know, this is the uh, path of meritocracy. The, the Chinese prime minister could be a beggar. All he had to do is to succeed in successive levels of competitive examination. Well, so they used the same um, technique. They said, if you want to come to study in the United States, under the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship, come and take part in this nationwide competitive examination. So anybody who had a degree can take part. So 19, before I left uh, Chongqing for uh, Kunming, I took part in this examination. And uh, the result was not to be divulged until 1945, and because they found one batch of the exam paper were missing. And later on, they finally found out and recovered the batch of exam papers, and they were the paper that including my own. And uh, so, I studied in uh, in the graduate school, and then uh, the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship result uh, was announced, and I even remember that that day. You see, when I was in the graduate school, we share rooms. Several students share room. One of my roommate is. Xi'an Yan, uh, uh, he, he is the son of uh, the uh, department head of the mathematics in, in um, Tsinghua University. And uh, so that day I was in my dormitory, I suddenly saw my friend Xi'an Yan running toward me. And uh, he came in breathless, he said, you won the biology, and he won the physics. So that was a turning point. Yeah, I want to elaborate a little bit more about the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship. Uh, ever since its beginning, uh, it had given altogether five sessions. Each session uh, usually includes something like a 20 scholarship, one on each subject, you know, physics, chemistry, and so on, but also engineering. Uh, the, uh, then it stopped after the fifth session. The scholar, many of them came back and uh, became professors 
in the various universities, including the National Central University and the Tsinghua University. Uh, but since the, the Japanese invasion, apparently it seemed to have come to an end. But then, for some reason that has never been explained expressly to me, at least, it resumed once and just the last time, and the sixth one. And, and uh, you don't realize how lucky it is because it was, it took place in the year of my graduation. And not only that, they have dispensed of a requirement of two years of t working. And if they didn't dispense of this requirement, I wouldn't be able to take part either. So all this is to show that I was extremely lucky in having won the scholarship for biology. And so <clears throat> we waited and waited. Finally, uh, we uh, flew to, into Calcutta, India over the hump. And that was quite an interesting experience. And then when we reached India, it was a totally different environment than what we had been living under because India uh, was not at war. And so uh, and we were in the hotel called the China House. I remember I was so fond of bananas that the waiter every time bring me double <laughs> serving of bananas. <laughs> and, um, and it was a waiting period, uh, but full of joy and uh, new experience. And I mentioned one. Uh, uh, in in uh, Calcutta, uh, they are uh, Englishmen. Captains and their wives are there like a kings and queens. And uh, 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 I remember there was a, a, a tea house or, or restaurant and, uh, by the name of Furples. And uh, sometime we went over there uh, for afternoon tea. Then one day, came a bunch of four American soldiers. <laughs> they were unusual. They put their feet on the table and, and they started singing Home on the Ranch. <laughs> we always remember this event because obviously these American soldiers were very homesick and in this remote land and so far away from things they care about. But then we were on the boat to, to America. And he took us, uh, the boat that we rode on was called General Stewart. And uh, we'll have uh, four, four beds in, uh, in, uh, in a row. And uh, I remember I was on the bottom one and on top of me, I could barely, I almost touch my, my nose. But it took months for us finally 
to go through the Mediterranean, through the uh, Atlantic uh, city, uh, the ocean, and uh, and we had met storms after storm. And uh, my friends and so on were all lying sick, and I was very proud. I was able to stand up and help to feed them. And then one day the snow and um, the storm finally passed. Ironically, I then got sick myself. <laughs> Eventually, of course, we arrived at the Hudson River. And, uh, and when then we began to approach Manhattan. And that impression of Manhattan never was reproduced again. It's just unbelievable. It's just such magnificent uh, sense of building totally immobile. And uh, it was in November, and the snow was beginning to fall. So next thing, we got uh, on shore to see our fellow American soldiers all went after not a beer, but milk. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. So we stayed in New York for about uh, uh, two or three weeks because we were we were in rags. And you know, we came from China. Where could we have bought any clothes? There was nothing. So we were all in this terrible cold looking for a decent suit. And you will be surprised how difficult it is to find one. But a long effort eventually uh, produced one uh, double-breasted brown suit, which I was so happy uh, to wear. And next thing you know, I was on the way to Chicago. Why was I on the way to Chicago? Because along with the scholarship, we had the option of choosing the professor we wanted to study, if the professor would accept us. And I decided to choose University of Chicago and under Professor Ralph W. Girard. I, I would describe why and later under him in particular. And so we were on a train so crowded that the only place I could occupy is lying on the floor, uh, lying down on the floor in my brand new suit. When I finally got to Chicago, uh, I stayed uh, in the YMCA and Wabash Avenue, and, uh, uh, and then I went to visit uh, my professor, uh, Ralph W. Chouard. Right away, he already had plans for my PhD thesis. And that was the end of 1945. So my career as a graduate student at the University of Chicago began in the early 1946. And the the it, it was a, 
a very uh, interesting time because uh, the United States has never supported basic research uh, before. And uh, at the end of the war, it has began an enterprise which is to use government fund to support research, biomedical research. And, uh, and uh, this was important because do graduate student work, you have to do research. Where did the money come from? This was a very important part that we did not talk about, but it became very important as time went by. So I started my research, my research, and uh, because I have already done some graduate work in Tsinghua University, I was able to finish my PhD only two years later. Most people took much longer. And uh, so I had my PhD and uh, I decided to spend another two years in the under Professor Girard for a postdoctoral fellowship, which I got that was provided by the University of Chicago. I, after that, I got my first job, and that job uh, is no longer in Chicago, but in Baltimore. And it was in the Wilmer Institute of the Johns Hopkins Medical School on Broad Street. There, uh, I had uh, uh, began um, research, which I started before I left Chicago. And uh, uh, it was a, a very interesting and uh, uh, productive period in which I started the first leg of what was to become the Association Induction Hypothesis. It was in Baltimore. And uh, I have a lot of story to tell about my life in Baltimore and the development of new ideas. And, but I, maybe I will talk it, uh, a little later. But I was uh, studying in uh, at the University of Johns Hopkins Medical School. And uh, uh, one day, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who was also at the Hopkins Medical School, uh, a Chinese friend, and said, uh, we would like to invite you to have dinner with us. And uh, I was not that enthusiastic because I had plans 
of seeing a triple feature movie. So I gave up my movie plan and went to his dinner. And uh, to make a long story short, there I met Shirley Wong, who was going to be my wife for 60 years. So the, the, the stay in Chicago uh, had not only uh, uh, given me an opportunity of the beginning of a new theory and also my life companion, Shirley. However, at that time, my professor, Gerard, was given the opportunity to develop a research laboratory of much bigger dimension. And it was located on Wood Street um, in Chicago as part of the uh, University of Illinois Medical School. And uh, it's the section called the Neuropsychiatric Institute. So I accepted Professor Gerard's uh, offer and then uh, uh, elevated myself from instructor to assistant professor. I was working uh, in the Neuropsychiatric Institute and, uh, uh, and, and uh, with um, uh, a much larger scale because Dr. Gerard uh, were able to pay for assistance for me. So I had at different time as many as three assistants and I was doing well. And that was at uh, uh, the uh, Wood Street in West Chicago, where gangsters used to hang out. But fortunately, at that time, uh, it was much improved. But still, it was a wild place, because shortly after I got there, I saw something going commotion. And next thing you know, they dug out someone that was killed <laughs> the night before. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, 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 those were uh, productive years. And, uh, and my first baby was born uh, in Chicago. And uh, then uh, something else developed. At this time, you see, when I was working with Dr. Gerard uh, as a graduate student, I worked uh, on electrical potentials of living cells. And, uh, uh, and uh, one day, I discovered that the, the theory that I was, my work was guided, called the membrane theory, uh, has been disproved 
it's, it's, it's a, a very uh, dramatic event because up to that moment, the, the cells uh, were considered as one with membranes that are like sieves. In other words, some items can go in, other items cannot go in. This is called, by the word, semi-permeability. And this is, um, I want to mention, is a macroscopic concept. That is, uh, it, 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 it says, if this is correct, there are only two kinds of molecules in the world. They either can go in or they cannot go in. And those that cannot go in will stay out forever. How long? Eternity. That just does not make good sense. But still, that was how everyone was taught and everyone worked on. Then the war brought in a new technology, and that is radioactive tracer technology. And what does that mean? I'll give you an example. If you have two pools of water joined by a, 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 a run, and, and there are gray fish in both of them, and the question is, are the fish in one pool going to the other one? No one can tell because they all look the same. But you can have a solution by introducing some red fish. And then you can just count the number of red fish going back and forth to estimate approximately how the gray fishes are moving between the two pools. All right. A better way is what the developer of atom bomb have created. Atom bomb produced radioactive elements. For example, if sodium ion is pumped between the inside and outside of the cell, then uh, the, the, the before that idea, the idea was there are only two kinds of uh, solutes, one that can go through and the other one cannot go through the pores. However, if you now added some radioactive elements, you will immediately tell whether or not it truly is impermeable. It turned out everything studied with a radioactive tracer are permeable. So the original membrane sieve-like model is out. And that is why they have to introduce a pump to keep the sodium ion low, even though they can go in and go out. But the story is, uh, is, is uh, uh, what, what is the sodium pump? It turned out that the people who wrote at that time were all misled 
And part of the reason is not many of them read uh, carefully in German. So years later, I read the uh, work of the people who introduced the cell theory. In other words, the people who first suggested that the cells are the smallest unit of life. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and his name is uh, Schwann. And Theodor Schwann, he was a German scientist, and uh, and he wrote a book, and uh, which I read carefully, and then I discovered he not only introduced the cell theory, he had also suggested as a part of the cell a pump the pump in the cell membrane. So it was really uh, Schwann who introduced the pump. And even though I never knew until years, years after my graduation. And at this time, uh, I will tell you something that's related, but also very interesting. It is, as I, I uh, just mentioned my PhD theory. Uh, my PhD work was on the electrical potential of living cells, in specific frog muscle cells. And uh, the underlying theory was the membrane theory. And uh, we hardly noticed the work on radioactive tracer which has already taken the bottom out of uh, my theory, my work. <clears throat> so what, what, about, what about studying the sodium pump? So I was asked by the department to give a Monday afternoon seminar talk to the department. And the topic is the sodium pump. And uh, I have uh, very little time to study this before, so I spent time and in the library uh, of uh, University of Chicago and studied and read and read and read. And finally, Monday afternoon came, and I was standing on the podium ready for my talk on the sodium pump. However, the first thing I said was an apology. I said to my audience who came to hear about the sodium pump, I said, I really have nothing to tell them. There is only a name. There is no substance of what the sodium pump is, how does it work, and so on. I then spent the rest of the time on the podium telling um, uh, the audience and my uh, dissatisfaction with the idea of a sodium pump because radioactive tracer have not only proven sodium ion, an ion that's not supposed to be permeable is permeable, there are many other things have also been shown to be permeable even though traditionally it was regarded as impermeable. So uh, on this and other 
I used up my time and I came down the podium. At this time, something unusual happened. I was taken away by two of my respected and beloved professors and given the same advice and almost verbatim. And, and uh, each one tell me, Gilbert, you are a guy we all love and we don't want you to spend your life as a martyr. So leave that sodium pump alone. It is a sacred cow. Uh, what, what make a part of science a sacred cow? You know, I took a long time and effort to come to the United States. I came not to find a job, but to learn how to do science. How can I just give up the integrity of science for the sake of not, violent, not offending the sacred cow? So I also thought they were overly worried. I didn't know America, but they did, but I didn't know at that time. So I said, nobody really should pay any attention what a lowly graduate student thinks or not think. So since I had all the uh, frogs and the equipment, the chemicals, so I started to do a very simple experiment. The purpose of the experiment is to see if the living cell has enough energy to run the sodium pump. And uh, very rapidly, I got the result. The result was at once astonishing and exciting. After four hours of exposure to conditions which has completely blocked off all energy source, the ionic composition of the cells remain totally unchanged. This is not what the sodium pump is supposed to indicate. And so, so I continued my research despite of my professor's advice, kindly advice, and, uh, and, uh, but I began to read more broadly. See, a graduate student is so busy with his work, he simply does not have time to read anything else than the one that he immediately is involved. So this time, I, as a postdoc, I started to read more extensively. I then came upon some studies of physical chemists, and uh, one of them was very, very unusual because what we had was a model electrical potential uh, system, and that's called the glass electrode. The glass electrode was already developed and used to measure hydrogen ion concentration. It's a pH electrode. But then came a very, very unusual uh, uh, report. A scientist uh, reported that he had started out with a good 
pH electrode, which good means it has only sensitivity to the hydrogen ion and no sensitivity to ions similar like potassium and sodium. However, this scientist by the name of Horowitz or Lark Horowitz reported that he simply took a good pH electrode and soaked it overnight in silver nitrate solution. Next morning, it became a silver electrode. In other words, it had nothing to do with permeability, and it has something to do what he argued with adsorption of the ion on the surface of the electrode. In fact, if you go back, you find this idea was not new either. And uh, uh, physicists, two major physicists, uh, among others, Nernst, has long ago suggested. And he does not believe in what was called membrane potential, but only surface adsorption potential. And so with this knowledge, I began to think maybe the living cell is more like a glass electrode. So I did some simple work and I published as a, an, a short article and presented the, in the Federation meeting in Atlantic City. And uh, I presented the view that the electrical potential, which we called resting or action potential, are not membrane potentials, but surface adsorption potential. And uh, it so happened that among the people who were there in the audience was a professor uh, from Columbia University. And, and his name was uh, Professor Harry Grenfast. Harry Grenfast uh, had among his friends three uh, young scientists who were from Philadelphia. It turned out there was an exciting time of uh, politics and related event in Pennsylvania uh, between uh, Senator Clark uh, and uh, Mayor Dilworth of Philadelphia. They decided to build a new psychiatric institute called the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. It's on Henry Avenue. And, but that is not altogether surprising because uh, psychiatric disturbance was very common disease. It included in the institute a new department of basic research. And to run the basic research, they invited three young uh, scientists from Harvard, and that was Don Rudin, George Eisenman, and Jim Caspi. They set up the Department of Basic Research. And uh, when George and uh, their, their immediate 
objective at that time was to measure the iron content of the spinal cord. The spinal cord has a central canal, a very narrow canal in the middle filled with the fluid. Eisenman Rudin wanted to know if it has a lot of sodium, but uh, there is no electrode that could be so small as to go in. So they bought a powerful electric furnace and started to make glass electrode of their own. And next thing you know, they found if you vary the content of the, met the, uh, of, of the electrode, the sensitivity will change from preferring potassium over sodium to sodium over potassium, and so on and so forth. So when they heard that I have suggested that the glass electrode potential is a better model of the living cell, they become very excited. So next thing you know, it, I have a visitor, George Eisman, in my apartment in Chicago. And what he offered was hard to refuse because they had a new department that has everything. It has a, its own independent library, a librarian to run it, and the funds, government funds to pay for all my needs. And they would be able to hire me technicians I wanted, as many as I want. So all in all, the offer made by Eisenman and Rutten for me to join their staff was too attractive, so I immediately accepted. So uh, in, on the day March 1st, uh, uh, 19, uh, 19, uh, it was 1946, uh, I think. Uh, I was in Philadelphia, and uh, a facility was beginning to open. And so I changed from being an associate professor at the Neuropsychiatric Institute of University of Illinois Medical School to become a senior research member of the uh, Department of Basic Research of the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. Well, there I had started to write my book, A Physical Theory of the Living State, The Association Induction Hypothesis. However, among the trustees that run the department were diehard membrane people. And uh, next thing you know, there was no way to stay on. I was, my two of my graduate students, Sam Horowitz and Bobby Finishel, came to my office and told me that they were called in to Don Rudin, who was then the acting head of the department. Uh, to quit working with me. I was a crackpot and, uh, and worked with them. Of course, 
this uh, led me to talk to the other members of the trail. I talked to Eisenman, and uh, and uh, the result is we all left. We all left uh, near the Department of Basic Research of uh, the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatrist. Before I leave uh, Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, I want to add something. Sure. Uh, the when uh, when I first um, came to the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, uh, the uh, three different scientists, Don Rudin, Paul uh, Don Rudin, uh, George Eisenman, and Jim Caspi were all working together toward the same. But then something happened. Uh, a scientist uh, from Germany came, uh, Paul Mueller, a German, and and uh, sometimes I listen to him. It's uh, unbelievable because he was in the German army fighting the American, uh, and uh, you know, here he was. Uh, he came to the United States because he married an American girl and came to America. And, uh, but he uh, did not like her very much, and so he always uh, crying spells and all kind of horrible things happening. <laughs> and well, but he, uh, sometime when we were still in harmony, uh, they uh, rediscovered uh, some old work of uh, Langmuir, uh, how to make lipid membrane. And so they were able to make the so-called black membrane, which is bimolecular. And uh, this was, uh, of course, uh, very much to the taste of uh, some member of the board, like uh, Laurenti Deneau and Francis Schmidt. And that was, in other words, they think the Department of Basic Research should, instead of pursuing what my work dictates, but to go back to the membrane. And that was the foundation, how they would tell my graduate student to become their graduate student. Well. We all left, the, the, uh, the Don Rudin and, uh, and his staff and Paul Mueller continue. But maybe some 10, 20 years later, I read an article uh, published by Paul Mueller who admitted that he and his friends had wasted 10 years by trying to add substance to the lipid membrane to make it permeable to ions. He admitted that, so I quoted that in my book also. So, so that was the uh, story at the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. And I must, looking back with great sadness, because it was almost an ideal pl place to do research if it had not been for the interference from outside, but it also had a weakness. The weakness is the support from the, the politics was transient. 
a very, very, when he was a clerk and Dilworth, and they did it with great enthusiasm. But out comes a new governor. And the first thing he got rid of his budget is the budget for basic research. And that is simply a fact. And that is uh, a, a lesson that should be uh, known uh, to future generation of people who eventually still has to deal with supporting fundamental research that is at odds with the existing status quo. All right, I mentioned that. Now, the problem was, where is my next job? And um, believe me, we all, uh, we were invited to different places and, uh, uh, and who either offered or not offered, but uh, the long and short is uh, I got an uh, offer of full, professors, full professorship at the Tulane University. However, I had to teach, among other things, pharmacology. And the pharmacology they wanted me to teach, I don't believe. So I declined that. And so where would I go? And uh, then uh, one of my students, uh, Peggy Neville, told me something because her husband, uh, was uh, an MD and doing his internship in a hospital in Philadelphia. That's the Pennsylvania Hospital. The Pennsylvania Hospital was founded by Benjamin Franklin. It's the oldest hospital of the United States. It was founded by Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Bond. And uh, it's on... Uh, uh, 7th and Delancey Street in downtown Philadelphia. Then something happened. The Pepsian Hospital was slowly uh, losing steam, you know, after so many years. Then one day, two gentlemen came carrying each a briefcase. And they uh, went and visited the new president of Pennsylvania Hospital, and announcing that they are representatives of the Hartford Foundation, which was the A&P money, the, the A&P grocery uh, company's money. They wanted to offer money to Pennsylvania Hospital to rejuvenate the hospital, to make more modern in treatment, and so on. And uh, next thing you know, uh, among the new uh, staff that came and joined the Pennsylvania Hospital was a, a neurologist from England, or rather from uh, South Africa originally, and from England. And his name was Frank Elliott. Frank Elliott now had money, and he wanted to introduce others to join him. And uh, he talked to his intern, by the chance, who was my student, Peggy Neville's husband. And next thing you know, I was sitting in the office of Frank Elliott. 
And Frank Elliott offered me opportunity of building a brand new department to do my research. And, and with the Hartford money, and we did just that. And it converted a, a storage house of the Pennsylvania Health Hospital on the corner of 7th and Delancey. But that storage house was not always a storage house. It was once a Catholic orphanage. And this has interesting connotations because I need support money. Um, and uh, as I will mention later, I was uh, having trouble getting research support from NIH and other institutes. But uh, I did get support from the Office of Naval Research, which was the oldest uh, public research support institution. And uh, the person who was in charge, uh, name of Art Callahan, and he came to visit me at the new laboratory, and he said, you can't believe it. My father grew up in that orphanage. These things are like this happen. In other words, the person who was supporting me financially was the son of an orphan that one time grew up in Philadelphia in the Philadelphia in the in the orphanage of the Pennsylvania Hospital. So next thing you know, we built a laboratory, and uh, uh, I stayed and. Uh, uh, in the very beginning, the National Institute had installed a new kind of uh, research support, which I thought was a very important and good one. It's called a career award. In other words, instead of orient toward projects, it's orient toward the person. And uh, this Original, my idea was to apply for it. In fact, I did. And, however, uh, my enemies uh, began to come in. So they blocked it, but did give me uh, what they called the Career Development Award. I don't need any more development, but nevertheless, it paid for my salary for a total of 10 years. So with that and other monies, uh, we went on. And... Uh, for, and there were other trouble, I'll talk under other conditions later about uh, uh, hardship that I went through. Uh, but uh, I altogether spent 27 years at the Pennsylvania Hospital in my own life. The, the peer review system as used in the funding agency like uh, National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, uh, particularly National Institute of Health, is uh, so barbaric because when you try to get support, you write a proposal, and only one person read that proposal. 
and his decision will mean either you have money or not have money. And if you have, you, if you depend on that for your research, you be, could be in grave trouble if you are not seen in favor by this one person. That person oftentimes competes for the same money. And indeed, NIH has put out a pamphlet advising future applicants of money to read carefully what that reader of your proposal has been doing. In other words, if he likes certain things, make sure you do research into his liking, or else you just won't get the money. Just remember, this was, this was a pamphlet issued by NIH to its potential applicant to tell you if you want money, better go along with who's reading your proposal because he alone determines it. All right, I just want to mention that. And uh, in my case, the department had happened to be a one-time student or my once friend turned enemy. This is a professor, Alan Hodgkin, who was uh, uh, the head at the uh, physiological laboratory of the Cambridge University in Cambridge, England. And this one-time student, a co-worker, Paul Horowitz, a young American, um, came back and he became the head of the Department of Physiology Study Session. He in, indeed now reviews my renewal proposal and uh, he and two other members of that uh, study session then recommended to the National Institute of Health two things. One is turn down my renewal proposal. That's all right. That's within his right. But he further, they further recommended that my work should never be supported by NIH again because my work, they are not interested. This is uh, illegal because he's not to us to judge the future, which hasn't come yet. And, uh, and believe me, uh, with the help of well-intentioned uh, science administrators, uh, they erected the so-called uh, special study session comprising uh, uh, neutral members. You know, like a jury. You know, you, you don't want the jury to be made of the brother and sister of the culprit. No, they aren't the, the victim. You want them as neutral people. It's so obvious. But here, uh, uh, he recommended that my work should not be supported by NIH. So in the year 1988, finally, their wish was realized. That is, they took away all my money. I was left out on the street. Uh, that was, that was uh, 
a terrible moment because I had put everything, my faith in science, and hope that I will get the support. Suddenly, I have nothing, and that means. And uh, when I told this to my wife, and she said, "Gilbert, we only have forty-five dollars in the bank. That will be the end of my career and science, because much of the work has not been written up." Fortunately, at this moment, came seven big trucks from my friend Raymond Damanian, because through my work, MRI was developed, and he had a company that would uh, manufacture magnetic resonance imaging instruments, and he had a company called Phonar. Phonar had sent the trucks. Which of course they didn't own. They they borrowed. As a matter of fact, it turned out they didn't have money to pay for that borrowing, <laughs> and, and they had to pop, come out of the pocket of the workers <laughs> for a moment at least. Anyway, and they took came and took all my pots and pans, old chemicals, old instrument, and everything back to Fonar, which is located on Long Island, New York. And uh, the doctor, the medium, then offered me my salary and the salary of uh, Margaret Ossenfeld, who was my uh, longtime research assistant. But much more than that, Margaret Ossenfeld was vital to our survival because she was running the journal I just mentioned. If we don't have the journal, we have no place to publish our work. That will be the end. So. But she was paid by Fonar, and also a Chinese uh, scientist, uh, Doctor Chen uh, Dongchen. So that was the beginning of a new life. I we we bought a condo. My wife and I bought a condo, and uh, which I lived in, and uh, every week.、Uh, But my wife could not stay there long because her her job as a professional musician and her students are all in here. That's where she played. So what happens is every week I come back uh, uh, on Friday and then return to Long Island on Monday morning. This continued for twenty years, twenty two years. And that, until finally,、uh, Fonar itself, the company, was having financial trouble. They stopped my pay. I think two o two o nine. From there on, I was on my own. So that ends my professional history, and so. I'm ready to take a second question. Okay.、Uh, my name is、uh, Gilbert N. Ling. I was、uh, born、uh, in Nanking, China. Grew up in China, 
came to the United States after winning in a competitive examination the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship. I got my PhD from the University of Chicago. At that time, I was originally planning to return to China, but at that time, a turmoil happened in China. They closed all the universities, and uh, indeed, everything was almost uh, impossible to return to. It was for this reason I stayed on and uh, eventually uh, became a citizen of the United States. First uh, accomplishment was the winning of the competitive examination for the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship. And this was a very important part of my life's accomplishment. The second one was the improvement of the glass capillary electrode. The glass capillary electrode, when I first inherited, was useless because it was not quantitative. The same muscle cell fiber could give you 80 millivolts in one measurement, and in the next measurement, give you 40. So it is not a quantitative. My uh, improvement make it into a quantitative instrument, so you very accurately measure and repeat it repeatable all through. And uh, uh, the next major accomplishment was the disproof of the sodium pump, completely and utterly. Yeah, this, uh, this, this electrode was developed a while back and uh, uh, as I said, it was uh, uh, useless for as a quantitative uh, equipment. And so when I improved it, uh, it was uh, referred to as the Ling-Gerard microelectrode. But I, uh, I thought it should be called alphabetically, so it would be Graham Gerard Ling microelectrode. And but when uh, and I did uh, question the sodium pump and got Cambridge all ready to jump on my throat, they have taken away my name from the electrode. The electrode henceforth is the only capillary electrode, which was totally inadequate because they were capillary electrodes that were totally different and useless. So they removed your name? They removed my name, yes. The, Quite a few people who had used the uh, Lynch-Ward microelectrode to make measurements in neurons and individual cells and won uh, more than several uh, Nobel Prizes. But I won't give too much credit to the Nobel Prize. <laughs> That's a separate story. <laughs> the association induction hypothesis, or AIH in short, is a unifying molecular theory of all life phenomena. And having said that, I must immediately point out, it is built on the basis that the smallest unit of life is not the cell, nor what oozes out of a broken protozoa and called the protoplasm, but something much smaller, much, much smaller, and which I give the name microscopic 
protoplasm, or better, nanoprotoplasm, N-A-N-O protoplasm. Now, having said that, I want to immediately uh, make an explanation. Uh, using the word microscopic uh, has an inherent danger because there are two definitions, and which I call respectively the biologist microscopic and the physicist microscopic. The biologist microscopic refers to a dimension about one, one thousandth of a millimeter. The physicist microscopic refers to a dimension that is one, one millionth or one ten millionth of a millimeter. So they are widely apart. The microscopic protoplasm I'm introducing is the physicist microscopic. And in consequence of this definition, the protoplasm that oozes out of a broken cell and that Thomas Huxley called the physical basis of life is given a new name. It is macroscopic protoplasm. Uh, the, the, uh, the very important thing about the nanoprotoplasm is nanoprotoplasm provides all is needed to explain life and life activity of all kinds and all levels. Now, uh, first, uh, uh, what, what makes up uh, nanoprotoplasm, proto macroscopic protoplasm, cell, and so on, are mostly water. Oh, you, uh, 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 a figure of 60 is percent is common, and the rest of them uh, are 40 percent are proteins. Now, what are proteins? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, when we uh, go to a restaurant and order a dish or chicken, beef or anything, you are mostly buying and eating a protein. So a protein is, a, is the core of life phenomena because protein is made only by living creatures including physical chemists who make them. Protein is made of 20 individual amino acids. And in this is like the English language alphabetical made of 26 alphabets. And the language, the assortment and order of arrangement determine the meaning of a word. But this is entirely arbitrary. You call the EAT a different word than ATE is because we call it that way. There are no natural reason for doing that, entirely arbitrary. But uh, a protein that makes one assortment and order of uh, arrangement of amino acids 
produce a protein that has a very real electronic basis. And so consider that. Now, each protein or smaller one, and given the name of polypeptide, is a linear uh, chain of amino acids. Each amino acid has two parts. One part is shared by all amino acids with a few exceptions. And uh, uh, the other part, however, is different. So if you think in your mind of a bunch of boys and girls doing a ring around the rosy, then you'll see they each have a hand, left hand, a right hand, and the left hand of one person joins the right hand of the other person. But it's the top that's different. Some are blonde and some are black and so on and so forth. So the ring around the rosy is a protein molecule model. The protein molecule is uh, different from its amino acid composition and arrangement. And, uh, and uh, the important thing to point out at this moment is that there are countless number of what I call microscopic protoplasm or nanoprotoplasm. The main difference between one nanoprotoplasm and another nanoprotoplasm is that protein is different. As a rule, it has one protein in each nanoprotoplasm. That protein gives the characteristic of that specific nanoprotoplasm. And however, as I emphasize and repeat, a vast collection of nanoprotoplasm makes up the microscopic protoplasm. The microscopic protoplasm, in turn, makes up cytoplasm or other subcellular organelles like membranes, mitochondria. Each one of them is made of one kind of microscopic protoplasm containing countless number of microscopic or nanoprotoplasm with a distinctive protein. So now, once we realize that we now consider two things. One is uh, the, what are what are other uh, components besides protein and water? And I may mention they are also in most living rest living cells uh, ions and mostly potassium ion. And a, a little side discussion about potassium. Potassium is one of a class um, monovalent ion uh, uh, that includes is called alkali metal. Alkali metal ions it includes lithium, sodium, potassium, rubidium, and cesium. 
along this line also is another organic ion that have property very similar to the uh, alkaline metal ions, and that's ammonium. Ammonium is important in the AI hypothesis because ammonium is the prototype of all the fixed cation. You remember I told you about the ring around the rosy. You know, some girls have brown, blonde hair and some boys have black hair. And these distinctive, uh, what is called the side chains in the proteins, are of two kinds. One carry negative charge, and these include the so-called beta and gamma carboxyl groups. And however, there are also, these beta and gamma carboxyl groups are fixed cation because they are attached to the large protein. But they are also fixed anion, fixed, uh, fixed cation that are carried by these uh, 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 fixed cation. Let me repeat. Free cations include potassium, sodium, alkaline metal, and ammonium. But fixed cations include variations of the ammonium ion. This will include the epsilon amino group and guanidine group. Both are modified uh, ammonium ions. So you remember that too is of importance. Uh, but I now go into uh, talk about uh, life. You ask, uh, what is life? Life, indeed, fundamentally represents a state. What is a state? You consider the case of water. Water can be vapor. It can be uh, liquid. Uh, it can be Solid. What are the difference? The same water molecule. The difference between them are the way they relate each one molecule to another, and how close they interact, and how regular are they. It's called the state. Now, in the AI hypothesis, being alive signifies the existence of the nanoprotoplasm or microscopic protoplasm or the cell in the resting living state. In the living state, the but is the resting. The alternative of the resting living state uh, is active living state. The resting living state and active living state are different in that in the resting living state, all the components, protein, water, potassium, are all closely associated with one another directly or indirectly. In the active living state, the potassium and water are all liberated. So in general, in thermodynamic terms, the resting living state has low entropy and the active living state has high entropy because potassium water liberated. 
Now, to maintain the resting living state, the, the nanoprotoplasm or its larger aggregates depends on a very important chemical. It's called ATP. ATP is the end product of all energy metabolism, whether it's oxidative or glycolytic, it all produces an ATP. When the ATP is acting on a nanoprotoplasm, it keeps that nanoprotoplasm in the resting low entropy state. If you did take away the ATP or its helper, which could be uh, one or other kind, then potassium and water will all be set free. However, if your system is such as in a normal condition, a healthy condition, ATP is immediately regenerated, so you go right back to the resting living state. And this change from the active to the resting state that constitute the basic mechanism for activity. Broadly speaking, life has two components. The first component is being alive. The second component is engaging in life activities. The two together constitute the substance of life. Now, what is being alive is being in the resting living state. What is engaging in life activity is shifting between the resting living state and the active living state. This shifting is uh, all or none. It is often referred to as a phase transition. This in, in, involves a phenomena which are statistical mechanics. What it does is that the uh, physicists uh, call this type of uh, interaction uh, ferromagnetic cooperative phenomena. And however, it is too clumsy and confusing, so I introduced a new word. It's called auto-cooperative phenomena. Auto-cooperative phenomena means that every time, let's say, in the case of hemoglobin taking of oxygen, a typical classic example, every time you take up an oxygen molecule in the hemoglobin, you will make the hemoglobin more, wants to take on more hemoglobin, oxygen. This is called auto-cooperative. And there is another word called heterocooperative, which is the opposite. That is, of the two alternatives, absorbing, absorbing oxygen or not absorbing, and it is the opposite, favoring the alternative. But heterocooperative uh, phenomena are rare. Auto-cooperative phenomena describe what is the behavior in the performance of life activities according to the AI age. Now, having made that clear, 
uh, I want also to point out the what what are I mentioned that they are auto cooperative interaction. What what does the uh, what, what does what does the resting living state uh, constitute? And as I pointed out, and I repeat, in the when when you are saying this is alive, it means that microscopic or nanoprotoplasm is in that resting state. It in, in the closely associated state. Now it may be worthwhile just to point out the title, the association induction. The association means that the, uh, the components involved are, uh, are absorbed or associated with each other. There are two kinds mainly. One kind is like interaction between water and protein. And to do that, the protein must exist in a special conformation that is called the fully extended conformation. The fully con extended conformation is such that the positive charge and negative charge corresponding to the right and left hand of the ring around the rosy circle is exposed. So you, the long chain are repeating unit of positive and negative, positive and negative. Each one of the positive and negative side then interact with one end of a water molecule. You know, here a few words about water molecule. The water molecule, as we all know, is H2O. H2O means each water molecule, the center oxygen atom uh, has, has a atomic weight of 16. And uh, it, it has uh, it's free electrons, 2, 8, and finally, the outermost valence shell of six electrons. Out of the six free electrons, two are engaged in forming a covalent bond with the water, with the hydrogen, taking away, sharing the hydrogen electron with the one electron of oxygen and forming a covalent bond. So I have two of these. And then there are the remaining out of the six, the remaining four forms two independent groups of lone pair electron. So at the close distance, one end of the water molecule is positively charged, the other one is negatively charged. And so what is called water is a dipole, is dipolar. And at long distance, a dipole is neutral. But at close distance, it will be positive or negative, depending on which end you approach it to. And each one of these water molecules then find its counterpart in the fully extended protein chain, which has positive and positive. 
and then they will form a layer of water. And the water molecules will line up another layer of water molecule. And these will go and into a, what is called polarized oriented multi-layers. And the abbreviation I introduced first with this concept is the PM theory, polarized multi-layer theory. Later on, I improved this and it become polarized oriented multi-layer. So it abbreviated the POM theory. This is a very important part of the AI hypothesis. That is, the, in later development, and I mentioned very interesting, is that if you, what this does is water structure depends on the, 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 the polar structure of the surface or collection of chain. And when you, you may have a, a, a polar surface like a checkerboard, a checkerboard of positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. And in 19, uh, in uh, 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 19, uh, uh, I think, uh, 03, I introduced a new theory, a new theory of the water polarization. This is a very, very interesting development. Uh, and uh, also demonstrate, think hard. You don't have to be a theoretical physicist to discover new physics truth. So I demonstrated the fact that if you have a checkerboard of positive negative side, which the neighboring are separated from each other by 3.1 angstrom unit, the exact distance between water molecules, then it will polarize and orient water molecule at infinitum without end. It's amazing, isn't it? Water will be polarized without end. And furthermore, water so polarized cannot be frozen at any temperature attainable. Of all these have been essentially confirmed retroactively. And so water can be polarized, oriented, and multi-layer. It then forms uh, the resting living state. And uh, a great deal of work we did at the Pennsylvania Hospital shows many of the property of living cell attributed to different causes, like the sodium pump, and many others are all due to the polarized water. They gave rise really to the, and you can demonstrate this in, in animated models and extensively. So, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, as I said, the existence of nanoprotoplasm or its large variants create the resting living state. I now, uh, and uh, a cooperative transition between the resting living state and the active living states constitute doing, uh, uh, l l conducting. You know, I, uh, I 
emphasize when I first uh, give the definition of AIH, I pointed out it is a molecular, a unifying molecular theory of all life. I now go to the all aspect. How can it be all? And that I already leaked some of that. I pointed out that nanoprotoplasma, a large aggregate of nanoprotoplasm make up macroscopic protoplasm. Microscopic protoplasm, in turn, makes up subcellular organelles like cytoplasm, cell membrane, and uh, mitochondria, and so on and so forth. Now, these organelles, cytoplasm, together makes a, a cell. And then different kind of cells make up an organ, you know, for example, a brain or a liver. An assembly of different organs in turn makes up an individual. Now, for humans, you can go one step further from individual life to social life. And so I quoted the case of Charles Dickens writing about David Copperfield. In other words, to tell about the 19th century interest society, social life, you describe the individual who lived at that time. That's the way you, you explain phenomena at one level by the physiology of one level smaller. So you can go track it down all the way back to the nanoprotoplasm. So this is how uh, the ladder of multiplicity that you, is this that makes it possible to explain all uh, life phenomena, and hence the conclusion that there is only one life. Cells make up organs. Organs make up individuals. And in humans, individuals make up social life. So all the known life will be founded on the basic mechanism of the nanoprotoplasm. It's truly amazing. Most of our, my uh, experimental work then, uh, were concentrated on subcellular and cellular uh, uh, activity, but it also touches on all varieties and it's all on cancer, on muscle contraction, and so on and so forth. As you know, the, the so-called uh, establishment textbook version of the living soul, of course, you know, is totally disproved, it's wrong. And as I mentioned previously, it is not only just wrong, it does not have even the substance of a hypothesis. So it has nothing, it is nothing. And nothing cannot give guidance to anything. And that's very obvious. But but amazing thing was, you, 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 in order to under malfunction, namely disease, you have to understand function. Since you have nothing, you're not offering anything, and therefore you cannot any, give any insight in, in issues of tremendous importance, life and death, you know, to, to, to not die early or die unnecessarily, you need a fundamental understanding 
of living phenomena. And we, as you pointed out, not only is, is wrong, but it is mistaken. For example, uh, you examine the work in the advanced field of genetics, you know, and you hear about all things, the human genome, they did all human genome and this and that, and they were one time telling uh, President uh, Clinton, uh, in fact, James Watson told him that if you give me money, I will do all the human genomes, and when we've done that, all our diseases will be secured. And the sheer nonsense, we now have the genome of every John Joe, and nothing has been solved. <laughs> and nothing, just literally nothing. So Why? You see, you, you, you look at, you go into the genetic um, literature, you find they are afraid of even mentioning the word electron. Everything is stereo-fitting, tinker toy. Tinker toy, you buy the one piece of that, the other one, and that's all they have. How can you explain the world, which is based on fundamental chemistry and physics, and chemistry itself is, by definition, a transaction of electrons, so how can you cure anything? You cannot do anything. Therefore, our medicine right now and drug industry is totally in the limbo. And not only in the limbo, it does not allow the right approach to come in. They're so afraid of mentioning anything about electron. It's uh, a fear of uh, offending the op opposition. And uh, it, it's so strong. No one, even with ideas, uh, don't dare to, to come out with it. And, and it's just uh, incredible. You so, cannot, you cannot... Uh, 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 deal with a real-life phenomena by uh, maintaining the status quo, which is what is going on. What you, what you need is the creation of, of people who have the skill and knowledge to develop, same way as Dr. Raymond Damadian developed MRI, you know, I, I told him the polarized oriented multilayer theory of cell water, and he took it from there. And he had a graduate student, then eventually he invented the MRI. And then Paul Lauterberg and uh, others further improved it to be the instrument we now have. This is, we need uh, people, young people, who are equipped to develop this. It's, each one is as fascinating as it can be, but you cannot, uh, the system right now does not permit it. And, uh, uh, and I, I think uh, one time uh, uh, Dr. Damadian told me the story. Uh, it's almost unbelievable. But Dr. Damadian, who rightly have invented the MRI, uh, was uh, denied the Nobel Prize. But before that, he was trying to get a Nobel Prize winner to back him for appointment uh, for 
uh, possibility of uh, getting a, a Nobel Prize. And uh, one of the persons that uh, he approached uh, it was Peter Mitchell, who won the Nobel Prize for his chemiosmotic hypothesis. This itself was astonishing because how can you give a Nobel Prize for a hypothesis that had not been proven? And indeed, uh, the answer to Dr. Demadian, who told me the story, is uh, really hilarious. Peter Mitchell said, Dr. Demanding, are you sure you want to get a Nobel Prize? Once you get a Nobel Prize, you can no longer correct your mistakes. You can no longer correct your mistakes. And the chemiosmotic hypothesis was nothing but a bundle of mistakes. Give example. In his theory, the chemiosmotic, meaning the driving force forming ATP, is a combination of two kinds. One is a gradient of hydrogen ion, and the other one is the electrical potential. It turned out in mitochondrial inner membrane, the hydrogen ion gradient is zero, and the electrical potential is only, instead of 300 millivolts, inside out, inside negative, it's only 12 millivolts in the wrong direction. And how can that theory be given the Nobel Prize when it's nothing but wrong? And this, it gives you an indication why the Nobel Prize is one of the stumbling blocks of pro-scientific progress. And uh, I uh, analyzed this story. Uh, uh, I, I tell you, I say, the, the most important stumbling block uh, include top on his list, the Nobel Prize Institute. Because the Nobel Prize Institute has made it clear it will not reveal its decision-making process until 50 years after the granting of the award. You know, why would it do a thing like that? It has to, because it's, it's just nothing but mistakes. And uh, however, uh, uh, the, uh, I, I use a, a, a simple thought experiment without involving even AIH. I said, truth and the crossword puzzle shares the uniqueness of its solution, its unique one. The, the correct crossword puzzle solution, there is only one. S same way, truth, the entire truth, there is only one. And as now I have already given further proof to this point. But let's think about a crossword puzzle. The, the, the scientific crossword puzzle, of course, is enormous. It's beyond any person's ability to resolve. However, a crossword puzzle like from New York Times is made to be accomplished from the train ride. And so, but suppose the New York Times crossword puzzle 
was being solved by a bright little boy, nine-year-old. And you know for sure he won't find the right answer because he doesn't have enough vocabulary. But suppose Nobel Prize is giving prizes to all fields of study, and including this field, which we exemplify by a crossword puzzle. So instead of a crossword puzzle, we'll call it biology. So it's a version of the solving of biological medical problem by a nine-year-old. All right, they come the Nobel Prize of giving award. How can they go over there and call the brightest biologists, say, look, you guys, you guys are primitive. We can only give you a second-class Nobel Prize. <laughs> that won't do. So what do they usually do? They will give them a Nobel Prize the same. In other words, now, the nine-year-old Nobel Prize uh, biology is given the same status as the most advanced physics and chemistry. And once that is done, no one can change it because the Nobel Prize has given the nine-year-old incorrect solution. So the number two is government funding agencies. Each one of these, by the way, the Leiden Nobel Prize, it has money, and it can make its own decision without listening to anybody. The second one is a government funding agency like NIH. It has a lot of money, and you can decide who to give the money to, as they demonstrate. Finally, the third kind is textbook writer. That is our own, one of the main problems. You cannot change the teaching. Why? Because right now, the, the textbook they're selling uh, gives them enormous amount of money. So you are telling them, look, you're wrong. And they say, all right, it's wrong, but we're selling it and get money. So the three, Nobel Prize leading, government funding agency, and finally, textbook makers, printers, are in combination, unknowingly or otherwise, that make the preservation of the status quo. And the status quo is against the welfare of all humanity. So how can we, how can we overcome that? And as I said, it must depend on the younger generation. As I emphasized, I think the, there is a great hope and illustrated nothing else than what you're doing. Your younger generation are willing and capable of doing what has not been done, period. Because there was no way. But the younger generation like yours also does not need to arm twisting to understand that the new truth have, favors the young generation and the still younger one that have not been born yet. And uh, that's no joke. When you have too many people and the people each only fight each other, how can you get anywhere? And at this moment, I want to 
repeat and and add uh, something uh, that was hidden, at least from me, is the invention of the scientific method, and but more so, the invention of the house of wisdom in Baghdad. You look at now what happened to Iraq. It's just horrible. The, 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 we killed we, we kill uh, Saddam Hussein, but what happened to Iraq? The Iraq was the one that had invented the scientific method. Iraq, but how, how did it succeed in that? It was incredible because the, uh, it, it was the Islamic, uh, the new Islamic golden age during which the, the leaders had the insight to do what they did. It's incredible. It has never been done again. What is that? Is the building of the house of wisdom. Do you know what they did? House of Wisdom created a progress of science unmatched before or after. They not only just created scientists, they created many of them polymath. The polymath are people who know different areas of research at the same time. And, you know, uh, for example, Omar Khayyam was a famous poet, but he also was a major mathematician. He had made contribution to the algebra, major ones. And what the polymath, in many ways, is the way of doing it because you see more than just your focal point. And uh, one of the things that the House of Wisdom did, which has never been done again, was what they did of collecting all knowledge and translating them all into Arabic and have them all displayed in the same library. Now, you see, why polymath? Because you don't need to go to another library to look for another subject. It's right there in front of you. And, of course, that was, the Islamic golden age was gone, and we have uh, beautiful libraries in Oxford, in Cambridge, but none of them can match uh, the House of Wisdom because they gave all the the knowledge in different languages. So if you go and see the library of Oxford University, you presumably have all the, the information but you have to know all the language as well as um, uh, your own to understand, so you just don't. So in the future, for an ideal case to be made, so that people can not only know what is the truth, but never forget what has been before, and know all of it in all directions. This is where the, the dictation, the, the future must be.
That is, you have to produce more than just what we have. And uh, changing everything into English is one. But think about how much a task it is. But the good thing is the AI hypothesis has indicating the direction and minimizing the direction to build a system, to build a library. New uh, uh, wiki, but that's all in one language. It is unthinkable about this moment, but what is the alternative? The alternative is people all die. And uh, 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 it, um, it's uh, unbelievable. Uh, and uh, I think I may have mentioned yesterday to you uh, what I read about the Great Famine. Uh, it's a really amazing. Read that Great Famine to, and then discover the great hero of the Great Famine that saved millions of innocent Russian people. And the leader of that is an anti-hero, is Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover is famous for bringing out the Great Depression, but that was really not his fault. But Herbert Hoover was the leader that had created the solution of the Great Famine. The Great Famine is one that all leaders should read because we are we, are, we have that in the future if we're not doing anything, if we're just shrug our shoulders and say, well, let's hope for the best. That's not good. It's going to come. There'll come food, energy, all of them. Well, again, the, you asked the question of diseases, so on. The greatest disease is starvation. So you don't have anything to eat. And you should go and see this uh, uh, PBS documentation of the picture of those people who actually died and how they started eating uh, their camels, their dog and cats, finally eating their own babies. It all has real. And, and uh, what are we doing any better than what happened in the Soviet Union now regarding the rest of the world. We now have 7 billion people living on the earth. How can we have enough to support them once we run out of all the fossil fuels? We run out of fossil fuels, we no longer have fertilized. If you fertilize, you don't fertilize, you won't grow any. And What's going to happen? I have, in fact, written an article on this issue. And global warming is real. Anybody who really pursued it will see that it is real. It is produced by carbon dioxide. It's not somebody's imagination. Everyone who knows anything and who read what all the literature that left no question that global warming is real. Global warming is enough to kill 
the earth because a point we reached, the temperature was too high. And, they, and indeed, if you want to even to go to a more scary reality, it's the fact that Venus one time was just like the earth. One time, Venus and the earth are about the same distance from the sun. And it had all kinds of indication it one time had water. And then what happened? All you need to look at this atmosphere. 80% is carbon dioxide. All the water has evaporated. And so the temperature is high enough to melt lead. And how can humans survive? We're going to duplicate the tragedy of the catastrophe of Venus on the Earth. But what are we doing? to prove that is wrong. There isn't. If you have time to read the literature, as I did, I read everything I could put my hand on. And the question was, no doubt, anybody who I studied all came to a conclusion. They are capable of explaining the temperature of the Earth over a long period of time by what we know, by global warming. It needs the education of new young people who are equipped to deal with it. This is a, a very, very tough call. And uh, maybe the film will be the beginning. And uh, uh, it's fundamentally what has gone wrong is not just the research aspect is the education aspect. The education has completely collapsed. It does not, as I said, who determined what is written in, do you know the word protoplasm is not to be found in any of the uh, uh, 14, 15 year old textbooks. It has, it, it's, it's just so bad that it, it is uh, entirely dictated by the status quo. And that is because it makes money. And the textbook company and also the school board and uh, the, 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 even more, uh, they're teaching creationism. Another d dimension of the problem. And so the, the firstly, you need educating of a young generation of people, of bright people. It's very interesting that uh, uh, I told you that uh, I have uh, I have been watching uh, this uh, evenings uh, what was broadcast by the China Central Television. The China Central Television uh, contains really useful information. It also tells you something um, uh, that I learned. Um, um, uh, uh, my Russian friend uh, went to China and had contacted some Chinese scientists. And one of those scientists, uh, Chinese scientists, later on, 
sent me a, a bibliography, his, his work. I couldn't believe it. It, it looks like he has lived the life of five people. He has a degree in physics, chemistry, German, all the English different languages. He is also right now a citizen of Finland. He, it's, and you just count the number of paper he wrote. It's almost inhuman. And uh, uh, more recently, I have found another uh, writer about these bright, super bright kids. And I think I have a suspicion this all has something to do with early imprinting. And, you know, um, imprinting, uh, Conway Lawrence's demonstration how a great goose gosling will follow anyone who on the 14th hour uh, make a movement. So it was really the boots of Conrad Lawrence that uh, the geese were following. But that only illustrates that you have uh, windows in the development. The, uh, the unbelievable uh, bibliography of this Chinese suggests to me maybe because of their special way of teaching, you know, the, the, the Chinese education system is universal and it started the same and the competition is so rough. You're, 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 when you are in kindergarten, you're already competing. And also then, you know, look at the uh, uh, Chinese leaders. Almost all of them wear eyeglasses. And that tells you that they have used their eyes more than normal people do. And it is possible that this opened them to developments that so far have not uh, commonly observed. But it needs to be determined. But you see uh, how this is, this is encyclopedic. You know, how can, how can anyone do that? You have to be extremely uh, good memory. But, but this person or anyone did not make any revolutionary discovery. It's only enormously capable of absorbing what exists. So that coupled with another group, the, this group, how, how to train this group, whatever it is, perhaps my own life can give some indication. That is, you, you have to learn the habit of learning by yourself from scratch. I, I am not a physicist, but I, I did not go to more too advanced physics, but nevertheless, I discovered new physical laws again and again. And see, that is a different approach from the Chinese teaching method. The two in combination were made achieve. A, 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 a group of people that have the, you, you, you know, you, you asked me, the, the, one of the questions was, have you seen the change in the scientific establishment since um, my AIH came into being. 
and that is in the in the the long run, of course, as I quoted uh, Machiavelli, and it is it is very difficult to introduce a new system. It's very very difficult, and that has been from time immemorial. He, he, because Machiavelli made it very, very clear. That is, you made, you, you must introduce a new system like I have. Essentially, you have created enemies of all those people who are doing well under the old system. That means almost all the professors all worldwide and teachers. And they may not be perfect, but they don't want to change. And then you only get lukewarm support from the people who may benefit from the new one because they, they don't believe themselves and they're afraid uh, of retaliation from the oppo- opponents, as happened uh, to me so uh, severely. You know, you, you, you asked in another section about the treatment uh, for, my work, for my work. I did not discuss that in detail. But that's, that's the case. That is, firstly, Machiavelli did not have the kind of problem uh, I have. It's, Machiavelli was talking about systems that may that may be hard may be easy to understand it didn't have that component but the ai hypothesis for the average people it's hard to understand many people told me including may one ho told me that she read my earlier book and she just completely gave up and it, it, that it, it's as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the uh, in my in my fourth book, Life at the Cell and Below Cell Level, I took a, a great uh, effort to provide a dictionary with the book, and we took called the Super Cellbrus. And a, a, a super glossary, and because you ask people to understand at the same time chemistry, physics, and biology, and they may only know one well but not the other well. So that super glossary was was essential, and so that when they came upon something, they will have somewhere to go. But you, but again, I. Uh, uh, May Wan Ho pointed out. I, I met her uh, first uh, in the Gordon Research Conference at uh, Monte Holyoke in Massachusetts. And uh, uh, it's, uh, she approached me and asked me to give her a copy of, of my fourth book, and, uh, and she will write a review. Uh, uh, and uh, she actually wrote the review, but she 
had rewritten it again and again. So the one that bears the title is no longer the way it was. But the first one that that came on uh, the internet was she had picked it up, dropped it four times, and because she thinks that I disrupted the flow by countless number of references and figures and so on. Uh, this, in, in many ways, is true only for certain people, you know, for... You, most people. Maybe. Yes, and most people just don't have the time. Mm. You know, even if you have the dictionary, you, you have look it up, but you have to memorize. You remember. You remember it today, then tomorrow you will miss it again. So you see, it's, not, it's harder than you think. And that was why uh, uh, you have to really start from from scratch and early on how this can be done. Uh, I think truth will prevail, but there are peop- there must be people like you. May uh, one. Uh, uh, eventually wrote, uh, expanded what uh, she did at first. And, uh, and uh, there's no question she spent a great deal more time. And, uh, but she still has points which she misunderstood because she was referring to the water as same as crystalline in the world. Uh, polarized body is definitely not crystalline. And crystalline is precisely what it is not. And crystalline water cannot achieve what the polarized multilayer is here. But again, but she made many important uh, uh, understanding, explanation. And, uh, but if, the, why do I use so many references? That's science. I didn't put the reference there just for the fun of it, but for the making the case. You, you cannot say something and just without the reference. References absolutely give the continuity of science. That is what modern science is. Modern science is not only the individual whim, of, but the global collection of scientists. And therefore, you have to refer to them, and not only that, you have to understand what he does. And as I said, the, 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 the sodium pump, all the Hollywood, uh, when they call who wrote this, uh, who invented the sodium pump, and they always say it's Robert Dean, and that was totally wrong. It was not Dean. <laughs> he, he, he was at the very beginning of cell theory. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you see how, and, and uh, uh, to see how complicated, difficult it is. I mean, in the opening page of my website, gilberlin.org, I have misrepresented who introduced 
size. And it's still there, the wrong one. I should have cor corrected. But you see how difficult. You, I wrote, I wrote a uh, website that covers many, many events. But when you have a mistake, you have to redo it. It's, I just don't have the time to do it. You know, um, I mean, in preparation for your visit, every moment I have, I spend trying to put together what is necessary. That is just so. I'm sure you have the same experience. And however, that's where youth uh, comes in. Young people have great memory. When you reach my age, memory is very poor, and you just have to do it again. I spend quite a bit of time disproving the sodium pump. As a matter of fact, in an article I wrote for Paul Gunny, I quoted six different independent evidence against the sodium pump. Together, they leave absolutely no doubt that the sodium pump is wrong. And these are the energy consideration is number one. That is, if the cell uses all its energy under the controlled condition I provided and use energy for one thing only, to pump sodium at the cell surface, it would then cost 13, uh, 15 to 30 times as much energy than the cell have as its command. However, uh, this was made at the time before the discovery of Podolsky and Morales that ATP does not have high energy. And this is a very, very uh, important uh, discovery because the energy I calculated providing the energy for pumping sodium is almost entirely in the form of ATP and another high energy bound of creatine phosphate. So you take away that, there is simply no energy. And 13 or 15 or 30 times is way, way out of proportion. And the long and short of this is the preservation of low sodium in the cell is not an energy, continually energy consuming event. It is it is an equilibrium phenomenon, as we have proven again and again. <clears throat> the second kind of evidence is you provide a preparation which we call uh, EMA, effectively membrane pump, less open-ended cell preparation. It's essentially uh, a, a system that uh, does not have an operating cell membrane or is supposed pump content, and yet it maintains the sodium 
low concentration and high potassium concentration, exactly as in normal cell. The third one was the work uh, of the supporters. Um, they have discovered a way of removing the cytoplasm from a squid axon. And that being the case, you should be able to fill the inside with seawater and see potassium pumped in, sodium pumped out. Try as they may, none succeeded. So these are the three most uh, outstanding, but there are other three others that were quoted. One is the potassium mobility. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, uh, in a book written by Bernard Katz, uh, he was making an answer to my work against the sodium pump by quoting Alan Hodgkin and Richard Keynes, who have made the measurements on the mobility of potassium ion inside the squid axon. Hodgkin and Keynes concluded in their paper that the potassium ion has the same mobility as in seawater, just free. However, they had committed a, uh, a mistake. The mistake is a little, little bit like the one about the dry cell membrane. It is, it first accepted its own theory, then proceeded to test the truthfulness on the basis of their own assumption. What is that assumption? That assumption is that the living cell, the only living part is the membrane. Only the membrane has pump. The rest of them is just solution. See, if you accept this assumption, then their, their proof that the cells they were studying weren't healthy was acceptable because they measured the electrical activity of the squid axon they were them. They don't realize in the AI hypothesis, each part is alive and could die separately or together. So in other words, we suspect the reason that they found that the potassium mobility is the same as in seawater is because they were dealing with dead cytoplasm. And to substantiate our work, my associate Margaret Oxenfeld and I did a lot of experiment. What we did is using frog muscle. Frog muscle is better than squid axon for a very good reason. Frog muscle, you can isolate intact. The frog sartorius muscle has no broken part. The squid axon, on the other hand, is different. The squid axon is like a nerve cell. It has a, a nerve center, and it has a long, long process. 
the long process is called axon, and that's they work with. So the first thing they do, they have to cut it. They cut it, and then what happened is they injure it. And to prove that, we have muscle cells that are intact and or that are killed deliberately. You first treat the muscle with a poison and holding it at the normal length and until uh, it is dead. And then you do study of migration of radioactive potassium. You find that the, uncut, the, the normal one, the potassium mobility, is one, one eighth of that of in free solution. But if you have killed it, it is almost equal to free solution. Mm. And then they are in between the injured one, which has more in between. So in other words, our experiment data prove that what they were doing, they, they were measuring potassium in dead squid axon protoplasm. That's another one. So altogether, we have six different ones. I think it, it, it is, you, you know, all you take a look at what's happening in Iraq, Right now, uh, the Sunni, and you know, they want the Shia, they, they kill each other. They don't want to live with each other. Why they think, think about the disaster in 9-11. They were human beings like you and me who believe that they are different from Americans who are bad. And therefore, it's good to kill those bad people. And while committing suicide themselves. But what should happen to them? They believe that because they are so good people, they will go to heaven, and then you will be married immediately to 72 virgins. This is where verbatim I, I got. This is all true. People believe they are different, and therefore can, they are able to do terrible things to other people. And I mentioned to you yesterday about the story of the Somme, that they could kill, that the Germans could kill the English people, the English people kill German. They all have a fundamental assumption that they are different. But if they are the same, then how, should, how can you kill each other? How can you do that? If you could not only shouldn't kill each other, you should take care of each other. You should nurture each other, and then you should preserve the entire human population so as a whole they will survive. And But that is only one aspect. The other aspect is uh, about, about the drugs. You know, we, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, uh, which was not recorded, that they are manufacturing drugs that will kill insects, that will kill insects that inadvertently kill honeybees, which we need for our agriculture. And yet they, they never hesitate. And this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, not care attitude of decision makers has the same kind of origin as those people who shrug their shoulders when they talk about some. 
And by now, we know there is only one life. We can no longer allow them to indulge in that. And just to make money, they will be quite willing to kill thousands, hundreds of people. It's not impossible that they don't understand that. The, 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 the evidence were so extensive. And where did I get the information? All from internet that tell you the truth. So, in other words, we, we need a change of attitude toward life, and especially human life. You, you cannot, there, there is no way to tolerate the killing of human beings and when they are, in fact, all brothers and sisters. And I, 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 I introduce, I add an aside. And as you know, I came from China. Uh, China has something to offer the world that the West uh, will do well to to mind. And uh, and yesterday, when I was online looking at the story of Machiavelli to refresh my memory, and I bumped into another another article which said that Machiavelli is a philosopher like the Chinese philosopher Confucius. Um, Well, I think his intention is good, except that that's exactly the opposite. But why so? Because Machiavelli's recommendation to the prince your and to the prince is that you must learn to kill and kill more then you will be more safe and confucius however had one recommendation he says don't do to others what you don't like done to yourself and you don't like to have your head cut off so don't cut other people's head so it's just the opposite the confucian teaching is global, and it is loving. It is uh, very worthy for the whole world to learn. And uh, I'm glad to learn from uh, the CCTV. There are now Confucian Institutes uh, established all over the world. And I think learning not only what the West achieved, you know, the West is very important to me because I become an American citizen. If the America did not accept me, what would happen to me? I don't know. I'm very grateful to that. But you must not forget the rest of the world. The rest of the world has their own wisdom. And I think one of them that is a Confucian uh, and uh, Chinese. In other words, don't write up come China just because it was communism. But communism fundamentally was not bad. They may have been mismanaged, but if they are constantly planning five-year plan for the future, they have a better attitude than we only mind what the latest is for myself. This is definitely a part of my understanding that is, Science is just not science. Science must be 
incorporated into a worldview of all people, all life. I'm very sad that I knew so little uh, when I started. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when we were married, we began to have children. And uh, my wife lost a major tooth every time she had one baby. And why didn't we know? We just didn't know. We are like every young people. You don't find out how to raise babies until the baby is here. And however, that just shows you how the education we provide is not adequate enough. Because when you need this, when you should have been informed. So after that, I learned that I make a point of calling attention to other people, raising their young people, and watch your teeth, and make sure all your teeth are protected during the time when your body has to give off enormous amount of calcium and to produce a baby. Um, but again, it's not that people you ask, oh, they don't know that, but they don't do it. And as a result, my wife lost uh, one tooth of each. So as a result, when she had finished with the baby raising, her the tooth teeth become very, very bad. Because once you lost some key molars, and you loosen up, then the other tooth began to loosen. And we still didn't understand, even then. And what is needed is the kind of information that teach people to live more than just how to add, how to subtract, how to live. And in, indeed, the, it, 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 it is so amazing how poor we are teaching the young, and including China. And I, I was amazed because in the CCTV, it was in one day talking about overweight. And it tells you, tells the story how the Americans are overweight, and so are the Chinese. I couldn't believe what I heard because I grew up in China. When I grew up in China, when I was in China, Chinese are all as re, almost universally thin, underweight. And uh, I had even a more precise case. When I was 15 years old, I was uh, undergoing a military training. Presumably, I, one day they would drive me. And we had uh, all told thousands of thousands of 15 years old from the province. And there was only one fat boy because he was so unusual. So everybody noticed this fat boy. The rest of them were all thin. Chinese diet was much more, early diet was much more healthy. Why has America become so fat? Many of them. Because they eat too much. And I also strongly suspect that their baby food is overly rich. 
You, you know, this is baby babies uh, are like other animals. It is well known among biologists. If you raise guppies, if you feed all the guppies one, they will become big guppies and they die early. However, if you only give them two thirds of the food they want to eat, they will remain small, but they will live twice as long. This is a guppies, but it's the truth with the rats. And it's the truth with all animals tested on this. And yet, what, what was, what did the American learn from that? Instead, they gave them the most uh, rich baby food at the, at the first. So by the time, you know, they commonly say they drink too much Coca-Cola. Uh, they may have drink too much Coca-Cola, but it's long before they drink Coca-Cola, they already are too fat. And that is another aspect which my, uh, my work with science has gradually taught. That is, people don't believe what they learn. And, and uh, if you look around, if you look around the situation about what is being taught about the sodium pump, you will not be surprised. People don't pay attention because they don't have a profound trust of their science. Their science is not the AI hypothesis. Their science is the sodium pump, which is as unbelievable as anything. So in other words, most Americans ought to look into scientifically the story. You know, you know who determines what to eat is the mother. Do you, how can the mother who just grow up like everybody else have the understanding of what the AI hypothesis provide? How can they do that? You, you see, you, you, you sometimes it's really, you feel really sad. I saw a perfectly wonderful Chinese-American uh, boy who was taken out of the house by a crane through the window because the, the, the doors were too small. And, and this boy would have perfectly good life if he had a proper advice on what to eat when he was a little boy. And, but who is doing this? Who is telling it? I'm telling me. I'm, I'm doing it. But in many ways, I was lucky. But my, my boy, Tim, was not that lucky. He I even forgot. I even forgot to advise him. But or rather, and, and you know, you, you may, I mentioned this yesterday, my, my son Tim died of a heart attack. And the heart attack came <clears throat> from the misreading of considering eating carbohydrate as the cause of fat being fat. That's not true because all Asians eat nothing but carbohydrate. And how many, you know, let's say you walk on the street of Vietnam, how many fat people do you see? You don't see them. Asian people, as rule, are thin. And the reason they are thin is they eat nothing more but carbohydrate. 
And that is also not necessarily unchangeable because, uh, uh, because the ratio, because Eskimos eating nothing but meat, and yet they don't grow fat. You see, a different, a different genetic selection. But this message on what diet to eat is really important one. And it is not only when you are very young. It occurs when you're older, too. And so uh, I, I am I'm eating a diet that I uh, construct. But I, I don't eat uh, red meat. I eat uh, fish. You, you will be surprised how little choice you have in going to a grocery. But you just have to be very insistent. And you know, I, I buy a lot of food from Whole Food who, who have organically grown. And it, it's, no, it's not facetious. You know, you go to, to Whole Food, you buy eggs. The eggs are not that more, much more expensive. Why? These eggs were laid by chicken they are grown in the natural condition, you know. They are not in the, grown in the, uh, the boxes the, that, uh, that are potentially poisoned because the food they, they feed them were raised on fertilizers that contains all the bad elements and 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 that is why you can get chicken so so cheap but you can get organically grown chicken it will be much better and so i make a rule of buying from whole food and i advise my friends to do the same it costs a little bit more but it's well worth it but very well worth it and uh, the 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 uh, uh, and also that you know, like uh, genetically engineered uh, uh, products, which includes everything, it's really dangerous. So try to avoid, and that's not as, as easy because you cannot buy everything from uh, Whole Food. And uh, also, you know, um, people still. Uh, eat a lot of sugar, and that's not good. The plain that sugar is does create diabetes, and you don't want to be. So you use. Uh, so what do I do? You uh, sweetener, uh, and however, to choose the sweetener, you also have to be careful, because there is one sweetener. sweetener uh, I went to visit um, my son, and uh, he took me to the restaurant that sells, uh, uh, the, the, the name escaped me, but it's on the shelf. It's an artificial sweetener. Aspartame? Uh, yeah. yeah. And it was originally a poison. It was originally an insect poison. 
and they discovered that it's a sweet. And, and I was taking it. And then I decided one morning I found out I couldn't fall asleep. And then I talked to my doctor. He said, my gosh, my, I just got from both my brother and sister that they couldn't sleep either, also because taking that sweet, artificial sweetener. So be careful. Just, uh, 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 however, uh, sweet and low seems safe. Sweet and low is cheap. And also, so I'm using mostly sweet and low. And, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, sweetness is, uh, when they make ice cream, what do they, what do they put sweetener? Right. What do they, see, again, you know, how much ice cream is being consumed? What sweetener do they use? They don't. Most of them don't tell you, right. um, but I, I don't know whole food um, uh, ice cream or how, what is the main um, again. So I also, as you know, I also uh, uh, plant a lot of uh, butterfly bushes, and, uh, and they all died from cold last this year, but some survived. But you know, that will help you help to uh, raise uh, butterflies and honeybees. But unfortunately, the, the 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 chemicals have already killed almost all the honeybees. I haven't seen any honeybee now. But I won't generalize until you have the data. Mm. It took my whole life to generalize the association in Dolphinheimer. It took that long. It's there's not something you can. Uh, just out of your mouth. And I think that was both Cocker and St. Georgie suffer from. There are two, two, they are, uh, they are suffering from the opposite. You know, like um, Mayden Ho pointed out that I had put in too many references and too many that's exactly the problem. You don't put in reference, it means you are drawing conclusions unjustified, overgeneralization. And, and in, indeed, uh, this is what I found. And, you know, they are my close allies, uh, uh, Jerry Pollack and so on. But Jerry Pollack has written a book that is selling very, very well. I think it's the fourth phase of water yes. as a but you know, it definitely doesn't have the problem of my book, as Mayna uh, said, too many reference. You have no reference. <laughs> the search for truth. Even if you are so convinced, you still have to constantly uh, go back and test it. I do that too. Um, you know, I provided such a massive data against the sodium pump. I could have concluded after the very first one because it was already disproved. But in the biological system, it is far more complex and you cannot rely on one set of decisive experiment to conclude. You have to accumulate huge amount of evidence. And if they all show you 
then you can begin to draw conclusion. But it took a long, long time. You know, as I said, all this time, all this time, it was constantly struggling with the establishment who was trying to kill me off. And just, it's, it's un- unbelievable thinking about how much suffering, not only I, but my wife has come in. And uh, it's, uh, the, it, it, it's, it's just like, just like the food, it's so complex. Right. And um, you, 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 um, and I think next time I go to Whole Food, I want to buy a jar of ice cream and look at exactly what it's made of. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, amazed at that uh, repeat and and uh, others like uh, uh, Ho and uh, Jerry Pala can. Stand, you know this. Uh, uh, there were many, many others who have made similar observation and approached me and wanted to work with me, but I told them I don't have the facility and laboratory uh, to uh, do that anymore. But on the other hand, just remember what happened to my students. It's, it was. You, you, you know, we talk about uh, what the establishment did. The establishment simply made it impossible for me to get money or threatened to do so. At that time, I had a whole laboratory full of bright young uh, students who were either doing their PhD or doing postdoc from all over the world. They were all the best people there were. But when they saw that I was on the verge of losing everything I had, they decided to, to change. And what could you blame them? You know, and yet they did something that they would never have done themselves. And the one was Chris Miller. And Chris Miller uh, came from Brimore. Uh, 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 no, for Swarthmore, Swarthmore, and um, he had a professor at Swarthmore, and the uh, uh, name of uh, Doctor Savage. Doctor Savage read my book. As a result, he became very enthusiastic. So he was encouraging his students at Swarthmore to come and get graduate work under my under me. So a whole bunch of them came here, came to my laboratory. I didn't solicit them, they came on their own. And, uh, and uh, as uh, Chris Miller uh, was doing work, and uh, very soon, again, confirming the AI hypothesis. No, no, no two way about it. And he was very proud. And, uh, uh, but he uh, was also taking a course at Penn. And, uh, and his professor uh, was on uh, cell physiology. And uh, 
and uh, uh, told my, my work the wrong way. And, uh, uh, and um, so Chris Miller waited until the end of the speech of the class and talked to, explained to him why he was wrong. And the professor said, look, <clears throat> I know that, but I'm, I have wife and children. I have to take care of them. So I don't mention Ling because every time I mention Ling, I see consequences. So Chris Miller wrote this down and gave it to me. And I actually printed it on my website. And then one day he was in the same boat as the professor. And what he did is he betrayed me. He had told people that I was wrong and I was not wrong. So in that case, I wrote a long article I called it Debunking the Alleged Resurrection of Sodium Pump. Yes, that, that was, that, the, that paper is also, you can download it from the front page on my website. And yeah, all you need is a click and you have the PBF version of it. Can you tell us what it's called? Right. And, uh, and uh, the, the, this, this was, uh, you, you know, this was just one of the, uh, it looks like nature conspires with me to make this my last experimental paper. Could you could you um, explain it though, as if we heard it for the first yes, time? Yes, I wrote a long article, wrote a long article to Phillips, who was who was the head of nature uh, editor in chief, who decides who is going to publish and not publish. Uh, I told him. Uh, my uh, my understanding of of the beginning of Nature magazine, its founding, and how it has something to do with uh, Thomas Huxley's uh, uh, physical basis of life, and how uh, and how they, he was made fun of. Uh, and uh, I told him that I am now in a similar situation. In, in the sense that this deserves to be widely known. This, this new paper deserves to be widely read. And, uh, and I, as I told you, uh, it was returned to me apparently without even being open. And uh, there was a card, not written away, a card saying, uh, we cannot accept your paper for rejection. And please don't resubmit. And, uh, and then that was, that was that. You know, I just told you about nanoprotoplasm. Well, there is a, the, 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 the human red blood cell, the red blood cell has played a major role because it's a red blood cell that led biology to the recognition of the existence of animal cells. That was the first one. And he also was the first one that led the biology to recognize the existence of cell nucleus because that, that red cell is not from human. It's from a different animal that has nucleus. And that was recognized um, by studying the red cell. But the 
most interesting thing is that to me was the mature human red blood cell. And it is known that the hemoglobin of a sickle cell anemia patient is different from normal hemoglobin by only one amino acid residue. This I quoted in the beginning part of my first book. I said, you need a mechanism that I explain this because sickle cell is vastly different from normal cell. Under uh, low oxygen tension, it changes shape. And other study has established it is the protein, uh, is the sickle cell hemoglobin that determines shape. And so again, here it is. Now, the human red blood cell, it has the shape of a biconcave disc. And uh, in the mature human red blood cell, the biconcave disc has no nucleus. It doesn't have a nucleus, nor does it have any subcellular organelle. It is just completely homogeneous. And what is the homogeneous made of water and hemoglobin? And uh, uh, together they made up a 98 to 99% of the red cell. That's the whole cell. And however, the human uh, red blood cell has another distinction. Is the distinction, it was the first cell that was shown to have no sodium, even though it grow up in a medium of plasma that has nothing but sodium. This later on was modified. It was not no sodium, it was a very low sodium, only maybe 10 uh, to at most 30%. Later on, study of all living cells shows that this is uh, shared by all living cells that examined, that is, low sodium. And uh, indeed, all the existing theory of the living cell were all centered around this observation. The sodium pump theory, you hardly need to emphasize. And so, and every one of them, and the the Boyle and Conway theory also, the SIP theory, all of them, all of them and including the AI hypothesis when they first start. It first started, the first version, the Lynx fixed charge hypothesis is also directed at the sodium potassium distribution. Okay, now, that being the case, we concocted a uh, a model of what I call the maximum uh, maximal hemoglobin of the cytoplasm of red blood cell, mature red blood cell. That should be very simply a solution of hemoglobin, pure hemoglobin in water at the ratio of 60-40. And we believe 
that if you make such a solution, by the way, hemoglobin can dissolve to the extent of 40%. It's very, very unusual. Very few pure protein can you can dissolve to that higher concentration. But pure human hemoglobin, hemoglobin can do that. So we made a 40 60% uh, solution and put it into a dialysis sacs, which allows things much larger to go through, but not the hemoglobin. Then we provide two other things. One is the outer medium, the ring, what usually is the ringer solution, is not a ringer solution, but a a solution containing mostly sucrose, isotonic sucrose, containing uh, 10 millimole of sodium. In addition, now you go back to uh, the red blood cell. From the observation of the composition of material red blood cell, the cytoplasm, uh, the 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 uh, nanoprotoplasm, uh, should be represented by a simple formula. It is one molecule of hemoglobin, and then attached to it. 2,000 molecules of water, 20 molecules of potassium, one molecule of ATP. ATP in AI hypothesis is an electron withdrawing cardinal absorbent. Electron withdrawing cardinal absorbent. When the hemoglobin is acted on by electron withdrawing cardinal absorbent, the electron density of both the carbonyl groups in the protein, in this protein, and the beta and gamma carboxyl group low, reach low electron density. When, you, when, the, car, when the beta and gamma carboxyl group uh, have low, uh, low electron density, it prefers potassium over sodium. However, when the carbonyl groups of the protein have low C-value analog, it will prefer to exist in the extended conformation and polarize the water in multi-layers. So we made this concoction and put it into a dialysis only we didn't add ATP. We instead added a EWC, a electron withdrawing cardinal absorbent, which is artificial, but by definition, a EWC, namely proton, a hydrogen ion, a hydrogen ion. So we added to the outside solution hydrochloric acid and, and uh, sodium chloride. Hydrochloric acid will vary in amount, 
And then we found out, indeed, as we have predicted, that the samples which we didn't add any acid, didn't add the EWC, the sodium ion distribution inside out is one. They're exactly equal without the cardinal adsorbent. However, those with hydrochloric acid will have sodium level exactly the same as in living red cells if you happen to be in the range of pH 2 to pH 3. This experiment is uh, truly amazing because it completely confirmed the theory. And not only that, it also shows at the same time each uh, of the hydrogen atom, uh, ion, bound to the protein produces an across-the-board influence on all the sites of the protein. And same way is the chloride bound, which does the opposite. The, the, the details of this is that we have completely confirmed the theory. And there is this proof of the sodium pump because there is no membrane. There's only pure hemoglobin and water and nothing else. And so we completely prove the, the essence of the AI hypothesis at the same time disproved the sodium pump. And you took this amazing data yeah. and you sent it to nature? Yeah, sent it to nature. And they rejected. And, uh, and I had a, a, a comment in the back of this printed article. It's truly amazing. You know, our theory predicts that each, uh, each uh, uh, ATP molecule can control the electron state of 8,000 water molecules. One, one ATP, eight, eight, and all this is possible because what is the AI cascade mechanism we provide the theory and given detail. It's the truly amazing. And the most interesting thing to me is how to make what I discovered and what other people discovered to last to the future generation. How, how because, you know, the worst condition, when I pass away, the whole thing would have disappeared. And it was very, very, so see how important it is. Because my, all my work, what, even my website, the moment I stopped paying for that whole thing would disappear. So I'm now trying to pay them a larger amount so they will keep them on line, even though I'm no longer here. But I intend to be long, here a longer time. <laughs> Um, are there any new scientific advancements or avenues of study that, that you find particularly fascinating right now? Well, uh, uh, we, we are, uh, right now, my, my task is to try to keep my life, lifelong 
associate Margaret Oxenfeld to stay on to keep the journal alive because the journal is now in at risk of of ending. There are no, no very few people are subscribing or uh, submitting journals, but uh, uh, as 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 long as I am around, I will be able to help uh, to fill the issues. Mm. Is there is there work from other scientists that impresses you, right? Like Gerald Pollack or Rupert Sheldrake or yeah. Maywon Ho. Who do you find inspiring right yeah. now? Right, and uh, I, I hope so. I hope others too. But there, there is a, uh, an immediate way of filling up uh, issues because we are falling behind. Uh, we are one one year behind, mm. and uh, that is that itself is a warning also. Right, you know the the journal of uh, <clears throat> uh, scanning microscopy used to be a very good journal that publishes all the work that Ludwig had um, created. It's fine, beautiful. And then they went out of business. Right. Well, besides your own work and research, who, uh, what contemporary scientists do you follow? Well, uh, it's up to them. Uh, before... Uh, uh, it, um, we have uh, friends in uh, Israel, and this group laboratory is doing study um, uh, special of uh, um, uh, a special kind of insect. And uh, for all those years, they have been publishing, and were but then he passed away. So we recently got one article from his group that appears a leftover work, but his group is no longer in existence. Mm -hmm. It's all signed. Is there Are there any potential breakthroughs that you see happening? You mean in his work? No, just in, in the whole field of science, anything that you've been following that you're really excited about. Yeah, well, I think that... I'm sure will will also come, and because the uh, the genetics part is in a mess, the genetic part is annexed to the sodium pomo, and and uh, uh, so it created another uh, thing that takes time to completely change. In other words, genetics was. Fine, because Mendel had done the foundation work. Mendel was rejected, but Mendel was rediscovered. And so the genetics study of genes, study of chromosomes and so on, was all on the right track. And so they were able to work out the details of all these different, and they found out very interesting uh, systems that can put together or cut apart the, the different genes, mm. and so they can, in in theory, create any new life because they're just recom recombining all the DNA, and then they uh, 
transfer to messenger RNA and then form new protein. That, that, that is being done. But uh, unfortunately, their idea of life is wrong. So the whole thing is leading nowhere but come. The resting state. The rest, firstly, you know, is, is the word state. The state means the relation, the, the spatial and energetic relation between the individual molecules. You know, water, the, 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 in ice one, the, they are very close and they are crystalline. And uh, water, they're loosened some, but they still did not have, lose the general relation. When water melts, it doesn't uh, expand. But when finally the temperature raises higher enough, it becomes vapor, and then they all become independent vapor. So that's a tall state. And when we are talking about resting living state and active living state, it's all a matter of change of the interrelation between the water molecules. Because in the resting living state, the water to water are in close association. And, but when you come to the active living state, they're all completely water, all loose. So water has become free, like free water. But this is only momentary. So they, they become free water, but without the consequence of flying away. Because before they can move, they're already back to where they are. And the, 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 uh, uh, the speed of this event is extremely fast. And, uh, and they also just taking like the, 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 the DNA, the gene. The, the longest the genes are hundreds of millions, millions of, of uh, DNAs. And so it's, it's uh, because we are so slow, we have to find matter that would do it and yet uh, reproduce. You know, how long do I incubate? I incubate uh, half a day. It's because we chose to do at birth. But in the real living state, the, the changes are very, very fast. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and so when, when you have the active living state, all the water liber- liberated and potassium liberated, yeah, it's very, very fast. And, but that's all you need. And also the important uh, thing is this transition is uh, auto-cooperative. Yes, you know, people refer to it as a phase transition. Phase transition does not, uh, phase transition is only a, a kind of cooperative change. And, you know, when they're talking about uh, the binding of oxygen, it, it does not involve a, a phase transition, but it, it is auto-cooperative. That is, the binding of one oxygen molecule onto the hemoglobin enhances the binding of another one. That's auto-cooperative, and it does not involve phase transition. But in other cases, it can. So in, in the AI hypothesis, I... Uh, uh, don't talk face transition very often because it, it, it's, it, it could confuse people. But in, in special cases, 
uh, one may one day find certain conditions. Uh, the, uh, one, when they closed my lab, I was um, at uh, Pennsylvania Hospital. I was on high, highway, um, on high pursuit for a helper for ATB. It is important. It's important to remember that uh, this is the the concept of auto cooperative transition is the concept of two states. That is, when uh, um, protein chemists used to talk about random coil, a random coil, and uh, and uh, alpha helical folded. And uh, in that case, uh, there are not just two, but many different states. The random coil, you work one way or the other way. But the AI hypothesis um, has, from very beginning, pointed out that the transition between the active and resident living state is a two-state. It, it, it only involves either one or the other one. And in the small book, I provided different kind of evidence that for that effect. Mm. That is, only two states. Hi, I'm Dr. Gilbert N. Ling. I'm the author of the Association Induction Hypothesis. The Association Induction Hypothesis is now virtually complete. And it is a theory that has the potential of explaining all life phenomena at all levels of complexity. And therefore, it points out to the fact that science, there is only one science. Life does not contain any other thing other than what the physics, chemistry have already provided. When Hodgson and Keynes published their squid axon experiment, they did 10 experiments. When I did my muscle, I did 78. And that's typical of my case. I always want to be absolutely certain when I'm saying something. The, the, and the, there are many, many things that needs uh, thinking and need working on. And, uh, and uh, also uh, to relate to people like yourself. And it makes a great difference. And uh, <coughs> right now, one, one of the things I have been working on uh, for quite a while was helping the Russians who translated my book into Russian and helping, and, and they have asked a professional translator, translated my Russian book into Chinese. And however, it was, when I first read it, I said, my gosh, this is a disaster. No Chinese will understand what it's saying. <laughs> so I ended up practically rewriting the book in Chinese because what I did was I have to learn the new Chinese. The, the Chinese had 
change their Chinese, and their much simpler form. And uh, so I did that. And so all that is uh, uh, near the end. But I have another problem, which is to sell my book. You know, after I wrote a book, I hope there were people who will buy it. So, and I, I'm, fortunately, uh, we have what's called Amazon.com. And you probably heard about Amazon.com is an online uh, selling system. And you, know, you, you can sell uh, whatever you want to sell. You can, you can, but you can also sell books. Uh, it's it's uh, very, very complicated. And I, <laughs> I'm very glad that finally I got both books on sale in uh, Amazon.com. But uh, I'm selling very few. So the question next is, how can I uh, enhance my sale? That would be what my, one of the uh, things I'm engaged in. It's, it's, um, uh, it's a very, very uh, complicated. You, you mentioned the, the peer review. The peer review system. Uh, I have uh, pointed out how bad it could be as it was practiced. But this has a long history. I'm sure you all heard about uh, the, the Chinese story of how an Indian princess, prince sent to the Chinese emperor an elephant, and the Chinese emperor then sent three of his uh, scholars um, to report on what an elephant is like. And uh, these were all uh, very learned professors. The only problem is that they were all blind. So when they approached the elephants, one got hold of the side of the elephant, so he reported that elephant is like a wall. And the second one got hold of the trunk, and he reported that elephants are really like a tree. And then the third one said, got the tail, he said, elephant is really like a string, and they argue and argue, and without a conclusion. Then came a little boy from the village. The little boy took one look at the elephant, and he said, elephant doesn't look at a string, wall, or a trunk. Elephant is like a, a big pig with a long nose. And uh, however, before this little boy can tell it to the emperor, the three wise men, the three scholars agreed that what they should do immediately is to get rid of the little boy. And that, of course, was the end of the 
the usual story. And now you see, who are these three blind professors? They are peers. So that is a demonstration of how peers is toward the understanding of new truth. You don't need to, too many. And, and uh, I also cite another case, um, two other cases. Another case is when, when Marco Polo wanted to go to visit China uh, by going to the sea. Uh, he went to the Queen Isabella for financial support. The Queen Isabella immediately uh, found three navigators uh, to examine uh, the, the plan, and uh, they all recommend the rejection. Uh, you know, I didn't. I got to, uh, it. Was I meant Columbus, and right. yeah, and uh, uh, however, uh, later on, uh, Queen Isabella's purser made a report, and he told Queen Isabella it caused very little to support Columbus. And indeed, no more than what she was spent for entertainment of your royal friends for one night. And Queen Isabella, on learning that, and changed her mind. And we discovered the new world. Again, who are these people who were advised against Columbus' trip? It's again, the peers. They are the peers. And again, the peer reviews. So you see, the general idea of choosing peers to decide is oftentimes in the negative because just as Machiavelli said, it was against their interest. And then I have a third case. The third case was the, the famous story of the kinetic theory of gases. And the kinetic theory of gases was, uh, as you know, um, uh, uh, Boyle's law, according to Boyle's law, the, a body of gas, the volume and the product, the product, the volume and the pressure is a constant, and this is known the Boyle's law. And uh, everybody realized how important it is, except one thing. Why should the pressure be on all sides of the container? People suggested maybe it's gravity, but that will only be one direction. So what could, why could, how could it have asserted pressure on all sides of the container. And uh, so then it came, there came a bright young mathematician, Bruno. <coughs> and uh, his name is uh, Bernoulli. 
Bernoulli came from a famous mathematics uh, family. And um, his father was also a famous mathematician. And uh, Bernoulli produced the first kinetic theory of gases, and in the, which he suggests that gases are not homogeneous phases, but consists of vast number of small particles or molecules. And, and they are undergoing random motion in every direction, and their bombardment on the wall gives rise to the pressure, and that's why you have pressure on all sides of a container. This was obviously the correct answer. Indeed, he was not the only one. Four other, three other people have also suggested different version independent of the kinetic theory of gas. The last ones was uh, Ludwig Boltzmann. Ludwig Boltzmann gave the most complete theory of the kinetic theory of gases. But not one of them was accepted. And um, they were all just rejected offright. And um, Ludwig Boltzmann, uh, for example, was attending St. Louis uh, meeting of the physicists. And uh, the uh, people tell you, we don't want you in physics. We'll give you uh, um, a chance to present a miscellaneous. And, and he was very insulted. Well, as you well know, uh, one day Ludwig uh, uh, Boltzmann took his wife and daughter to a spa and asked them to enjoy themselves swimming. Meanwhile, he hanged himself. Oh, dear. And, and so you see, it's a very unhappy condition yeah. that all these people encountered. Uh, not, there's a possibility that a second inventor of the Boltzmann, of the uh, kinetic theory of gas, also committed suicide, but no proof. He just disappeared on that. Oh. Um, well, all I, this is indicating that uh, introducing new things, no matter how uh, convincing, uh, it encountered resistance. What happened? Finally, it was adopted. And guess what, how long it was? It was 170 years. 170 years between the time that Bernoulli introduced the kinetic theory of gases and the acceptance of physicists of the concept of kinetic theory of gas. As a matter of fact, physicists didn't even believe that the molecules existed until this time. Mm. And uh, all indicate who are the, who are the ones that postponed it so long because each of them presented an article describing was sent to a peer, and the peer uniformly rejected. And, uh, and also, 
what you look at who the peers were. They were not all bad people. They were good people doing good things, but they were just not ready to accept anything new. Right. Well, um, how did I get to study the cell? It's a, a long story. Uh, first, of course, in my school days, I learned the cells are, were the smallest unit of life. I, I knew that. But it was the time when I was studying in the, the Tsinghua University in Kunming that I came upon a book that came from America. And it was a book entitled Unresting Cell. And it was written by Professor Ralph W. Girard of the University of Chicago. I read the book and I was very much impressed by what it tells. So uh, years later, when I finally uh, won the Boxing Indemnity Scholarship, uh, I had not only the scholarship, but also the option of choosing the professor I would like to work under. And so when that came, I chose Professor Ralph W. Girard of the University of Chicago who wrote The Unresting Cell. That's when, once I uh, made that decision and asked Professor Girard for permission, and he agreed. So next thing you know, I became a graduate student of Professor Girard and my work was on the living cell. Yeah, you know, when I started uh, my work with Professor Girard and I began to investigate the electrical properties of single muscle cells. And that's how I started. And uh, uh, two years after I started, I completed my PhD thesis. And up to that point, I was in the belief uh, that the membrane theory was uh, correct. And uh, my work uh, on the single muscle fibers seemed to confirm that. And I published the result of the impact of temperature and uh, external potassium ion concentration on the magnitude of the membrane potential and they all seem to agree with the then current membrane theory. Yeah, this, this work, uh, uh, when finished, I uh, reported at the uh, Federation meeting held in uh, the Atlantic City. And uh, so uh, uh, I uh, told the audience what I had found, and, uh, and it was... Uh, uh, very, very well received. And as a result, uh, shortly after, I had a visit uh, from uh, a famous uh, uh, physiologist, uh, Alan C. Hodgkin, from England, of Cambridge University. When um, Professor Hodgkin came to our Department of Physiology at the University of Chicago, uh, he had long discussions uh, 
with my professor and me. Uh, in particular, he wanted to know uh, how to make those microelectrodes, which I improved and made possible those studies. So I showed Professor Hodgkin how to make the microelectrode. In return, uh, he offered me something which was surprised to me. He recommended to the American uh, uh, Physiological Society to ask me to write a review on the membrane potential of living cells. And uh, very soon, I received such an invitation. However, thing, as things developed, I, my perception began to change. So even though I already almost finished writing that review on the membrane potential of frog muscle, I did not send it in. And as for time and uh, uh, postponement and to see how things develop, I asked for six different postponements until finally I declined the invitation and telling them that I no longer believe what my conclusion was. I started to believe that the electrical potential of cells are not membrane potentials. And then I began to uh, express my view that I have a different outlook. I began to think it was a surface adsorption potential like that on glass electrode. And as I had already uh, mentioned yesterday, this led to uh, uh, a, a wild, uh, to a wide recognition that I had made a drastic change. And uh, as you know, uh, the detail how through Professor Harry Grunfass, uh, I, uh, my finding was made known to uh, my future colleague at the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. Yeah, I, I will uh, tell you uh, the follow-up. And I thought uh, I will give you a special instance uh, to indicate what happened to leading members of the establishment in cell physiology. Uh, at that time, the membrane theory is still uh, widely accepted. And one of the, uh, uh, or rather two, of English uh, biochemists and physiologists were uh, James uh, Danieli and uh, Hugh Davison. And they introduced a new theory of the cell membrane. And, and, and they presented that in a small book, a widely read book. The book suggests that the membrane is not just lipid layer, but lipid layer sandwiched between layers of proteins. So uh, at that time, uh, this view became very popular and everyone talked about an important one. Well, uh, sometime after that, uh, Professor Danieli uh, of uh, Great Britain uh, took a job offered him by American University. And uh, 
uh, and uh, he uh, became professor uh, uh, in American University, and uh, uh, then, uh, to my surprise, I received an invitation to give a talk at, at his new university in the United States. Uh, uh, <coughs> yeah, the American university that offered Professor Danieli the new job is located in Rochester in New York. Uh, it's university not Rochester. And as I said, uh, I received an invitation to give a talk on my, uh, on my AI hypothesis. I was surprised, but accepted the invitation and went there and gave a talk into his department of biology. And uh, after I completed the talk, uh, Professor Daniele came to the podium and said, Gilbert, I want you to write up exactly what you have presented. And I will publish in the journal of International Journal of Cytology, of which Professor Daniele was the editor-in-chief. And so uh, intrigued, I went home and wrote up my lecture. And this, before long, it was published in the volume 26, page one of the International Review of Cytology. Uh, it became a very uh, popular uh, writing and I had many requests for uh, reprints of that uh, article. However, after that, after people began to realize what drastic change I had brought on cell physiology, people like James Daniele became scarce. And instead, he was beginning to be in the hands of people who are much more skeptic and was not willing to give anything, like Professor Daniele, who actually gave me the opportunity at the expense of his um, believability and uh, reputation. So, in summary, my uh, revolutionary AI hypothesis has created an unfortunate change that the, the book of the people in charge no longer tolerate people like Daniele. And instead, they are all people who go with the crowd. Mm. So this is the very unfortunate change which happened. Uh, lasting till this day. Okay. This, you may remember that when I was only about a year old or so, I went to live with my grandparents. And my grandparents uh, live in a small village and, uh, and uh, he has uh, 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 a home that is full of nature, connected to nature. For example, he has a big flocks of uh, geese and uh, ducks, which uh, every morning will open the gate and they will all troop out and sw spend the day in the little river behind our house. 
and foraging. And then as, as uh, uh, in the evening, you will all come back and usually lay eggs, and which I was happy enough to pick. And indeed, this early imprinting of exposure to living things had left in me a deep fascination with life, which I never lost, and gradually expanded to not just young uh, baby chicks and baby ducks and so on, but baby humans too. And from there, gradually, I grew further into trying to find more about these living creatures. So my first attempt was to try to learn about them. So I entered the Department of Animal Husbandry in the National Central University. After two years, I discovered that, that was the wrong choice. I, they did not uh, satisfy what I was looking for. Then I switched to the Department of Biology. And as I mentioned yesterday, that was a very, very important turn of my life. Yes, and as you see, uh, the associated induction hypothesis uh, was introduced in three steps. The first step it was uh, on potassium, and uh, that was called the Lynx fixed charge hypothesis. It's the embryon embryonic version of the AI hypothesis to come. After that, I wrote and published the AI hypothesis proper. Then uh, three years later, I published my theory of cell water. And that theory of cell water is, uh, uh, in the, is called the PM theory or POM theory. Uh, in this, the water molecule, not just a few, but all the water molecule in uh, any living cell is bound in the sense it forms a polarized multilayer dynamic structure on the exposed protein involved, the fully extended protein. I described this in some mercy yesterday, but in general, it is that the water molecule in all living cells are more tightly bound to each other than in free water. Now, when this was published, uh, it drew a lot of attention uh, among uh, biologists, uh, physiologists, and so on. And then uh, 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 three uh, young people, all unknown to me, began to introduce a study with what the physicists invented, the nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. NMR spectroscopy. NMR spectroscopy, what does NMR spectroscopy do? NMR spectroscopy uh, does one, one important thing. It is that in certain atoms that are NMR active, like hydrogen, uh, you can measure the uh, rate of dissipation of nuclear magnetic energy from the hydrogen, for example. And uh, so with this knowledge, uh, three 
scientists. They were Dr. Uh, Freeman Cope, Dr. Carlton Hazelwood, and Dr. Ray Demadian. They were using nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy techniques to test my theory. In other words, does the dissipation of the nuclear magnetic energy or proton in living cell uh, becomes more efficient and therefore the, uh, the constant called the T1 and T2 will become shorter if the protein, uh, if the water molecules are in the state of polarized multilayer and therefore more strongly bound to each other. And they soon independently published their result. They unanimously confirmed the theory that the T1 and T2 of hydrogen atom in the water of living cells are much shorter than that of the corresponding hydrogen atom in free water. Uh, this uh, it was a landmark event. Then it led to further development, and this was development by Raymond Damadian. What when I uh, what Raymond Damadian did was truly unusual. He and two of his graduate students had built a, a, a machine, a, a, a machine uh, that would detect the NMR T1, T2 in not a few cells, but in a whole human body. And uh, to do the, that, they had to dig a big hole in the floor of the department of <laughs> University of New York University. Uh, but they tolerated, and next thing, uh, yeah, they made it this big machine and called it indomitable. With the indomitable uh, uh, machine, uh, he, they were able to produce the MRI of a whole uh, human body. So uh, one day I received a letter from uh, Dr. Raymond Damadian. And uh, since I have read this often enough, I almost have committed to memory. And the, the, the letter says, uh, on July 3rd, 4.45 a.m., we succeeded in making the first MRI image of a whole human body. The achievement originated from the advanced saltwater biophysics, of which you are the grand pioneer. With your classic treatise, the association induction hypothesis. That then was how clearly stated that it was the association induction hypothesis that led to the development of MRI. So, you know, if I had not proposed the PM and POM theory, then water is just water, and no one would want to study it. 
It's only because I propose that there is stronger interaction between the bulk phase water that it could have elicited the interest of three independent scientists. And in fact, later on, there will be another group of people who repeated and further confirm the theory I proposed. So the invention of MRI was uh, achieved by uh, Raymond Damadian. This, despite the fact that the technique he used with his indomitable is relatively primitive. And the same way that the Wright brothers' airplane was primitive. But the credit was of inventing the airplane was due to the Wright brothers, not due to later engineer that made the jet plane. And therefore, even though the practice of MRI has been much improved by the contribution of physicists and chemists like Paul Lederberg, and, and that, that did not take away the fact it was Dr. Raymond Damadian who invented MRI. The success of the AIH by extensive confirmation in all aspects had led me to the recognition uh, that uh, there is only one life. And, uh, and yet, this, while this may sound uh, uh, sensible and it, it has not, it does not agree with the conventional belief or assumption of people in medicine and in biology. To give you an example, uh, everyone in America wash their clothes and the kitchenware with detergents. A most important detergent is the chemical called sodium dodecyl sulfate. Sodium dodecyl sulfate is also called SDS. SDS is a very familiar compound for biochemists, as far as they should be, because it is familiar to people who study the property of proteins. You may remember, protein determined the nature of the nanoprotoplasm. It's the most important molecule because it is only synthesized by living beings. And when you study protein, one of the uh, chemical tools is denaturin. What denaturin does is to change the natural conformation, the way it's folding by uh, the detergent which opens it up and denature. And I, uh, to put on the aside, that the AI hypothesis also pointed out that the conventional view of protein chemistry, I call what is native protein, what is denatured protein, is seriously wrong. Uh, 
is under many conditions, what they consider native is not native. What they consider denatured is not denatured. On contrast, that what they count denatured, the fully extended state is the native state. But most protein chemists have not awakened to that fact. The, the, the evidence is solid. But now I'm returning to detergent used not by protein chemists to denature protein, but by housewives uh, who wash their dishes and clothes. Now, if you wash your dishes, hopefully the detergent will be washed away. But that's not always the case. As you, I, you may have heard me talk about many times, the agent that affect biological phenomena only needs to have very low concentration to produce impact. So every day you are washing your clothes and washing your dishes, you are doing, you are applying poison. In other words, if you want to have better health, maybe you should think twice about using kitchen detergent, which is everywhere. You go to everywhere and you see a sink and you most likely will see a bottle of detergent right there. And there are different kinds of varieties, but they are not very far from SDS, the, the strongest poison that you can. So what is the answer? The answer is still not all that uh, uh, what, what one would expect. The, the answer is to go back to using soap, soft soap. For example, ivory soap, that's what I use. But uh, you know, it, it presents problem. You can't put ivory soap in the washing machine. It would foam and so on. So, so what, how do I wash my clothes? You'll be surprised with water. My, I know, once I fully understood the seriousness, I said, why is it happening that in the United States, in the whole world, the past history is that women, as a rule, outlive men. But as cases after cases, it seemed to turn the other way around. For example, I gave you three examples. My good friend, Xi'an Yan and T.D. Lee, they all lost their wife before they themselves, and so did I. So why are things changing? What women do, men don't do. Women wash, men don't. Men wash their face, but they, they don't wash dishes. They don't wash uh, clothes. And so here is the, 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 the change that is needed. How are we going to cope with this? But this only illustrates that there's not only are insecticides, like a gaucho, that killed undesirable insects, uh, like the bovine weevil, also kill desirable insects, like the honeybee. But I'm also sorry to point out something in this direction. The direction concerns what these uh, detergents 
can do elsewhere. It was, uh, as you know, uh, there are uh, uh, people, tribes, culture in Africa that depend on their herding of cattle. They're cattle people. And so they cannot have uh, uh, lions uh, who will eat their cattle. And so one way is to uh, protect their cattle with spares and so on. That was habitually the case. But they, the bright member found uh, another way to do it. And what did they do? is that they go to the stores and buy uh, the, uh, uh, insecticides. Uh, what is the, essentially is the gaucho and another different variety. And they spread it along the side of the river uh, where the hippopotamus uh, live. And of course the hippopotamus eat grass and they will consume the grass containing high concentration of insecticide and got sick and die. The dead hippopotamus were sources of meat to the lions. And so the lions began to eat the hippopotamus and die. And so you see the Indian tribes had found a way of killing lions with what was intended for insects. And now you can see if something can kill a lion, what would prevent the same thing from killing us? And what would prevent women who use this kind of chemicals, those both to, to keep uh, her laundry and kitchenware clean, and also to prevent insect uh, like termites and so on in their house. So you ended up with the terrible recognition that there is only one form of life. If something kills an insect, it will kill humans sooner or later. So here is a very, very profound questions. You know, how many housewives would want to wash their clothes with water alone. And I, I have not convinced many people to do that, but that is real, including you yourself. How are you going to, how are you going to wash your clothes? Of course, you send it out. That took away the dilemma. <laughs> they simply wash it with SDS <laughs> without your knowing <laughs> That is a, a uh, at once profound and uh, Interesting question. Uh, if you go to the internet and look for all the uh, knowledge we have, is that there are plenty of theories, but they're all wild speculation. But there one set of work, which was, uh, uh, I believe, uh, accomplished at the University of Chicago, and that's uh, Miller and Urey's uh, study. What these pair of uh, uh, chemists did was try to imagine uh, 
the unusual condition of the earth at billions and billions of years ago. It was much hotter. And it also is surrounded by thunderbolts and everything. So what they did is they collected small molecules uh, that made them be found everywhere and uh, put it under a condition of uh, exposure to high energy and so on. And, and uh, to their uh, uh, delight, they found that all kinds of amino acids are produced. Uh, you remember proteins are macro-linear macromolecules made of individual units of 20-some amino acids. The amino acid that was created, the, the, the noble, are of many kinds. And so you can see that one step, that amino acid will be formed. If amino acids are formed, then other steps will allow them to produce proteins and to produce proteins that are self-reproducing. But that step is very remote from the knowledge because we know very little about the condition of the Earth when it is first formed. There was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah. Do you think? Right. Okay. There, are, there are countless uh, theory of the origin of life. And uh, I can describe, but I'm not sure I believe in okay. any one of them. It's just too much of speculation. Okay. How has your work influenced Mei Wan Ho, Gerald Pollack, and Harold Hillman? Yeah, I take great delight. Uh, first, I must say, all of them are brilliant and courageous people because at this day, to still be knowingly associated with me is almost like a Sinai, and yet they survive. And that, that is both their skill, ingenuity, and dedication. And they just don't give up. And uh, uh, Harold Hillman, uh, for example, was a professor of physiology at uh, University of Surrey uh, in, in England. And uh, uh, one day I received a letter from here years ago, and I made contact. In this letter, he said very flattering things. And he says something like, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I think you are one of the great thinkers of today. And that's how he so kindly commented on me and my work. And later on, uh, he had, uh, on different uh, occasions, visited me in Long Island first by himself, and then with his daughter, a charming and intelligent daughter, and uh, Harold Hillman. And we have communication. Among others, Harold Hillman was the one that brought to my attention that the great journal uh, econ Economist, which uh, has a huge worldwide circulation, had for no provocation, start to attack me. And indeed, announcing to the world 
that the majority of scientists thought my work, my idea were uh, crazy. Uh, and uh, and uh, Harold Hillman uh, said, you, you need to take it up with them. You got to deal with them. And this was uh, dealt with. And uh, I think in 1926, I wrote a letter to the Economist, editorial chief, uh, president, and editor-in-chief, and uh, asked him to answer, why would they attack me? Have they really interviewed everyone, every scientist in the world, and found the majority had thought my idea as crap, as uh, crazy and say it, it's obviously impossible. You couldn't have interviewed any, all the scientists of the world and came to the conclusion that the majority had strong views about my theory. Most likely you interviewed a few people and you exaggerated and say they represent the great majority of the scientists. And uh, I sent uh, this letter out in 2003 and none of them ever answered. I, I then uh, wrote an article describing, well, I, I then asked them, uh, why do you do this? And you are saying that you have evidence that the majority of people thought my idea was wacky. Uh, yet you have no evidence. There is not a one paper published anywhere making that claim. And therefore, I wanted them to make a retraction of that attack and also an apology. I uh, did not get an answer, so I wrote up an article describing an unanswered letter of 2003 to uh, economics asking for retraction and apology. And this was published. I'm not a person habitually contrarian. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. I, I feel there are many great things that are, that are represented in science. And those great things are established ideas by the scientific method. When things have been clearly established by scientific method, such as the kinetic theory of gas, of course, I accept it wholeheartedly. Not only accept it wholeheartedly, but help to further develop understanding it. So I'm not a, a contrarian by nature. I am a scientist. A scientist should be a contrarian only in the sense of not accepting something that has not been established as truth. In, to them, I am a contrarian in the sense that every self-respecting scientist and non-scientist as well should adopt. Yeah, I now go to Mei Wan Ho. Uh, I met Mei Wan Ho uh, uh, in, I think, the year 1985 in a Gordon conference uh, uh, held in uh, Mount Holyoke, uh, Massachusetts. And, uh, uh, the 
Garden Conference uh, people who arranged it had invited me to give a keynote speech on the first day, first evening. And uh, uh, it was there that I first uh, noticed Mei Wan Ho, and who, after the talk, uh, came to me and he said, asked me, could I give him a copy of my latest book? She wanted to do a review of my work. Mei Wan Ho then published her review of my work under the title Strong Medicine for Biology. And uh, that was a, obviously also a strong title. And uh, uh, in this article, when she first published, she uh, 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 recommended the AI hypothesis as an important development, but she complained that she had to put off, put off reading five times because it was hard to uh, continue because I had cited so many references and included so many figures, and it does not read smoothly through. And uh, this is um, an, an interesting comment, uh, which uh, uh, has bearing in general about the publication. And she pointed out I cited no less than 500 articles in the book. And why, why, do, why, do I, why did I quote so many references? This is actually a very profound question. You see, as I mentioned to you, before science had transformed itself from what was called the natural philosophy to modern science, is that it has changed from an individual uh, preference to a global affair, that is, with the invention of the scientific method, it is possible for everyone to test the validity of any hypothesis, whoever makes one. So in other words, it becomes global. And, and, uh, and uh, this is extremely important because that is what modern science is, that allows you to achieve what you could not achieve before. And the reason that I have quoted something like 500 references, because I want to show clearly, I did not invent the AI hypothesis all by myself. I invented on the basis of discoveries, ideas, theories, and so on, of scientists all over the world. And so if I don't cite their work, it will cause the regression of science back to its natural philosophy status. And you won't, the reason that you have a modern science global affair is that it will continue. And whereas if you have only appealed to a local readers with no reference to anybody else, you, only, you will only last a short time. So the answer to May Wan Ho's criticism is uh, also 
in the nature of the AI hypothesis. But nevertheless, I, I not forget that by her effort, she had brought attention to uh, the AI hypothesis. And now I also mentioned Jerry Pollack. Uh, Jerry Pollack wrote a very uh, uh, kindly introduction to the Chinese translation of my book, Life at the Cell and Below Cell Level. And he very candidly described his life's experience. Jerry Pollock is a professor, full professor of uh, bioengineering at uh, the University of Washington in Washington State. And he has uh, uh, a, a large department with many fine equipments and supporting work from NIH. His work before he met me was on the details of muscle contraction. And that was, that was his, his beginning and end. Until by chance, he was invited and uh, attended a, uh, a small uh, research conference held in Budapest in Hungary. And uh, 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 in the uh, preface, uh, um, Jerry Pollack wrote, and he said, this meeting was a turning point for his life. And then he described how not only he uh, became aware of something significant, he had given copies of my books and articles to all his graduate students and fellows. And they all agree that there's something profound in the new approach. And uh, so he ended up the article telling that now, not only he himself, but all his students are now pursuing the new direction, which is the AI hypothesis. So you see, Harold uh, Hillman, um, Mayhem Ho, and Gerald Pollack, they the three main people you have also interviewed. And I, I wonder, uh, did you try to interview Ray Pete? There are people like Ray Pete who are really uh, very important people because, like all the three I just mentioned, they all have a sense of integrity of what science is. And, and we, human beings, long-term survival would depend on its own integrity. Because if you do not have integrity, you will just merely be destroying each other. And as I pointed out, uh, I, uh, I am not only in favor and uh, love uh, little chicks, ducks, honeybees, young people, but all people. Therefore, we should immediately condemn in no uncertain time war. Why should we raise each other's children and only to have them killed? Just totally idiotic. And no word is strong enough to condemn the habit of accepting war as a way of human uh, life. It has to be 
it's an extension of the association hypothesis, but nevertheless, it is logically inevitable because there is only one kind of life, only one kind of us. Homo sapiens is homo sapiens. They're all brothers and sisters, whether you find them in China, in India, in Africa, in the United States, in Europe, anywhere they're the same. The people are brothers and sisters. You don't kill your brother and sister and, and still claim that you are a sane person. You are mad. And this madness must be gotten rid of because what is the antidote to madness is truth. Truth alone can break all the madness, the fantasy hallucination that we Germans are better than the English and the English are better than the Indian and all that nonsense. To this day, you hardly find any serious effort conducted by a large number of people to condemn. Um, you know, you are called the pacifist and somehow with a shrug of shoulder indicating you are not manly enough. Manly enough is to be able to stand up for truth. That's manly enough, not how to turn a trigger of a gun, and that doesn't need anything. See, you can say when the time was Alexander the Great, and you yourself lead the arm, kill each other with the swords, you may arm make a case, but not with the modern equipment, you just turn a trigger. What is so glorious about that? Again, I want to use this occasion to show what the AI hypothesis, by establishing that there is only one, one life, it will give guidance to the future of humanity so that they can live and survive a happy life in time indefinite in the future. I'm Gilbert. And Ling, I was born in Nanking, China. I grew up in Beijing, China. Uh, eventually, I won the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship and came to the United States to continue my education. However, Growth change in the condition in China made it impossible for me to return to China. So I stayed on in the United States to make use of what I learned and to turn into something useful to all mankind. Therefore, I stayed in the United States. And the United States was generous enough to accept my wife and me as a U.S. citizen. And, uh, and uh, without uh, the facilities and everything else, imperfect as it is, I could not possibly have created the association induction hypothesis. Yeah, I have held different academic appointments in the United States, ranging from Johns Hopkins Medical School, University of Illinois Medical School, the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, and a new laboratory built in the first uh, hospital of the United States, the Pennsylvania Hospital, and then finally uh, in the Department of Basic Research of the Fonar MRI Company. I 
did all of this until uh, I, I retired uh, officially from Fonar Corporation in 2009.